Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. All right, welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 51, Horizons Part 3, The Legacy. We'll be wrapping up all of our Horizons coverage. All right, and sitting in with me always tonight from Tampa, Florida, Mr. Hal Bowers. How are you doing tonight, Aloha, I'm doing just wonderful, ready to dive in here and get this uh, get this done for the folks. That's right. They asked for it, they're getting it full full swing here. And Ohio, Mr. JT Couser. Good evening, Todd. How you doing? Pretty good. Pretty good. Nice and warm. Oh, it's been hot. It's it's something else here, but yeah, we're we're plugging right along, getting ready for a trip to, to Florida, which is That's right. exactly what we need on these hot days. Just more heat. <laughs> You're meeting up with some of our fans. You, JT is going on a promotional tour to uh, <laughs> yeah. to promote Retro Magic, which we'll talk about a little later in the show here. Meeting up with uh, the World of Micah on YouTube yeah. and uh, the Fort Wilderness podcast, our friends... Uh, Art and our our favorite fan Reese is going to be there. We're going to go explore some Fort Wilderness Railroad, so we'll be be meeting up doing that. Hope you bring back some iron for us to sample. Right, so, got the golf go. cart lined up. Yeah, it's going to be all legit. set. Yes. Awesome. And also coming to us just south of us, but east of Ohio, Mr. Brian P. Miles. How you doing tonight, Brian? Greetings and salutations from Philadelphia, the Liberty City. And happy birthday, Todd. Thank you, sir. Yeah, this is how I spend my, my evening birthday with you guys. So, had cake and a full day of work. So, <laughs> we're ready to roll. So. Brian, I was expecting a happy birthday, America, from Philadelphia. The li- you know, the Well, it's already thing. passed. Yeah, I mean, that would have yeah. been like the June the belated one. I mean, birthday. Fourth- Independence Day was last week. Yep. It's uh, always a joyous time here in the tri state area. Uh, we celebrate it just like George Washington did, right? setting off fireworks and having barbecues and taking an airport. Now, Brian, they're, they're, taking it. There's nothing here, Brian, between between you know Independence Day and really Labor Day. I think we should reserve a day in August for that tri-state area to have something like Pork Roll Day. Pork Roll Day would be nice. Wouldn't that be nice? I have a package in the fridge. I haven't oh, opened it yet. There we go. Uh, you know, picked it, picked if, it up last if week. If you guys so. could take that down to Roy's cabin and fry it up, then. We'll have <laughs> Here's a question: Is we'll it is it a Florida thing? Like, can I get it when I go to my my you, grocery run? Absolutely, I am told you can get it in the Publix markets yeah. down there. They have All pork right. roll for sale. Yeah, I might so. hit this up because I, I looked might, here; it's yeah. not. Do, here. Yeah, you're gonna have breakfast with Reese and everybody. Go go out to Fort Wilderness, get a barbecue going. <laughs> I'm yeah. not having breakfast with Reese. Yeah, English muffins with a little cheese. Right. Oh, it's good stuff. Oh, yeah, Toast a little egg, up. fry up an egg. Turn right. it over, over, over hard. Yep. Yeah, I'll put it in my mouth like a chest of drawers. That's for sure. We <laughs> We've got them all there, down check, here. Check, what, check, check. You're done for this night. Good night, everybody. All right, we do have another guest sitting in with us tonight. Uh, Ted Linhart is back with us. He was here in the uh, 
uh, Horizons Part 1, The Promise. And uh, Ted, welcome back to the show. I know you've got some notes for the legacy portion, so thanks for joining us again. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting, and I loved listening to Part 2 as just a listener. It was great. Was it too long? Too no, no, no. <laughs> I, I could have, you know, me. I could have done two more. I could listen to two more hours. Yeah. For that. <laughs> my my son picked up on it and he says to me, "So oh, can we listen to your latest episode?" And then we were driving home somewhere, and it was about an hour and a half drive. I said, "Yeah, it's three hours and fifteen minutes." He goes, "What? What the heck were you talking about?" <laughs> I said, "Well, it's good for up and back. You get you get a round trip out of it. It's like a Francis Ford Coppola movie." Exactly. <laughs> we left very little on the cutting room floor last month. I'll tell you that. So. All right, so getting on to that, and speaking of last month, and and this is a perfect segue into um, some comments and corrections. So speaking about last month, um, how you and I were talking about the area in in Horizons where the scuba team uh, was getting ready, and and also behind them was an area where uh, you could be above water and then dive into a hole in the floor um, and get into the water. And that area would have been pressurized so that the water doesn't come up, etc. So um, Kaitu wrote in, or uh, is at Futureport on Twitter, and said the correct name for that is called a moon pool. All right. You were searching for that, so that's what it I is. Knew, I You know, for all the years I've watched movies and things that have those in them, I never knew yeah. what it was called. And thank you. I like You've added another piece of knowledge now that I will that's right. never forget. Isn't it bizarre that something that's way up in the sky is something that's in the water i don't know (laughs) i'm gonna get some moon soup and eat it in the moon pool (laughs) that's right staying on topic today there we go it's a moon pie if you've seen the movie abyss right there's a lot of moon pools in that thing yeah there is johnny quest on the navy seal johnny quest had a ton of moon pools that had moon pools i love Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea they had a hatch in the bottom that they could like go down in same principle. Titanic had a no. Yeah, <laughs> accidental, right? <laughs> Titanic didn't have. But, but the Starship. Uh, no, no, no. Was it the Was it the Enterprise or was it the Klingon bird of prey that they had one in uh, Star Trek Four? Because mm. there's the one where they they they're, they're they're going out into the ocean. Is that Search for uh, Spock? That's four. No, no that's it's definitely uh, four. Voyage Home. It's Voyage defi- Home. Yeah, Voyage Home. I, I, but Got it. I have a vivid memory or, of them wait. going in and out of an ocean. Hmm. It might have been from one of the episodes from either the Enterprise series or Voyager or one where they took the ship under the ocean and mm. somebody goes out through the hatch. But yeah. yep. there's definitely a Star Trek where that happened. Have you guys ever I think, seen a, what was that show that was on in the 60s? Oh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Voyage to the Bottom yeah. of the Sea. I was going to mention that. that. Yes. I, yes. I, I, yes. I wonder if they had any moon, pool, moon pools at uh, the Gungan City underground. Oh, yeah. Star, <laughs> Star, Star Wars, The Phantom Menace. You never know. They now there was a different membranes that they swam yes. through. Those. There was a different yeah. type of moon pool in National Lampoon's Vacation with Christy Brinkley. So <laughs> yes, that was yes. a totally different type. That of one moon was pool. brisk. We're just, we're just gonna we're just gonna keep throwing out water references <laughs> here. Yeah, from exactly. Sci-fi and comedy movies. All right, moving on, moving on. So last month, if you guys recall, we uh, was it was the last month or the month before. Um, we talked about Meisner's Lounge and where that came from. Uh, and Disney-fied Ash, she wrote in to us, this is our friend Ashley, um, a friend did a walking tour in Palm Beach and found um, um, Meisner's home, saw Meisner's home, and the grave of himself and his beloved pet monkey. Wow! So if you are in Palm Beach, you can go check out his pet monkey grave, and uh, apparently the monkey went everywhere he did. Nice! <laughs> so Michael Jackson wasn't the first, huh? That's right, that's right. 
So uh, another comment for Horizons. This is actually from the for the Mesa Verde scene. Um, we talked. Uh, this is Lucy writing in, and she did a little bit of research for us. Um, that's the scene where the woman is farming, and she said uh, she said that back that in that time, the Horizons was developed and open. Only five percent of U.S. farmers were female. Um, and now still less than 20%. And, you know, she saw that the, the dad was home baking the cake, so to speak. So really, given the time frame, it was it was really uh, ahead of its time. And she also commented, um, since that's 2083, somewhere right now, it's 2019, the, the grandparents in the ride are alive now. So it was, so it would have been, it would have been 2076 because it would have been the tricentennial. Right. Right. Because that's the whole century. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was the, what the whole three. thing was about. So yeah, so 2076 minus 2019 gets us 57 years old. They'd be 57 at the time, which is pretty close. Maybe yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah. So any of you listening yeah. right now will be the grandparents in this thing a few years in from 2076. Write us when you get there. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, and the last comment uh, is Joe Barlow. Uh, really enjoyed last, uh, he says, enjoying every one of the 194 minutes. Um, in the floating classroom scene, nobody mentioned that the pet's seal name is Rover. So another back down to the moon pool area. Um, another nod to Carousel Progress because the dog was at one time was Rover. That so. would Thank you, Joe, for pointing that out. That was yep wonderful. Um, now, how to, in, in our ongoing chat, we... we we all work together before an episode and share anecdotes and stories and pictures that we found after our show and before the next one, uh, how I did clip and, and send you a picture of, that I clipped out of a, of the teddy bear in the space scene. And it did remarkably look like Pooh. And um, I, I, it's hard to tell though. It's really hard to tell if there was, was Pooh there or not. So I think there might have been two, two bears at mm-hmm. at some point there might have been a regular bear and then it got switched to poo. So that's that's the the work I have to do is to try to figure out if that's actually what happened and then cuz that's plausible. I mean, who knows? Maybe someone stole the bear and like they replaced it with a poo bear or yeah, someone decided to add a little synergy. Michael Eisner came in and said, "Let's get some synergy in here. Let's let's put a poo up <laughs> Where's there." Where's the characters? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. It sounds boring. Where are the characters? So all right. Well, that does it for corrections, comments. I'm going to pass the baton over to Mr. JT for the listener mailback. I'll be sure not to drop it here. Okay. Well, I have some good stuff, uh, some breaking news, which we'll get into here as the last one. Um, the first one is from Top Jimmy. Jimmy just wrote us. He said, hi, I just started listening a couple weeks ago. I started with the newest and quickly went back to episode one. I love hearing it. Hearing discussion says his first trip uh, was in the winter of 72 followed by yearly trips from there. Uh, one of the recent episodes, episode 7, was all about souvenirs. He didn't hear it mentioned, it may be mentioned later, but I don't think we did. Uh, he says, a couple of souvenir merchandise memories that stand out are the early 80s Tomorrowland gift shop, the radio meter bulb spinner, and the space warp toy coaster by Bandai. Uh, I always thought both those fit in the theme of Tomorrowland so well. We're not really seeing it in any other stores, and I finally convinced my parents to get me both as his trip souvenir. Uh, does anybody recall those? I, you know, he sent pictures of those, and I don't. Rem- I mean, I cannot remember those in the store specifically, but I absolutely recognized both of those items 
Like when I saw the picture of the box of the of the little roller co- the Bandai toy is like a roller coaster. And I still th- mm-hmm. still sell those ones say, but like I instantly recognize the typography and the picture of the kid on it. And I remember back then it's like they sold those little solar spinners. It's like it looks like a light bulb with the the little black triangles inside, and then it spins when you turn the light on. It's like that was a common item. And I was later on I was trying to think of the different things that were sold in uh, in Mickey's Mart there. And there, for a while, there were, like, a bunch of, like, you could get tops with, like, holographic, like, colored tops on them. So, like, it was all, like, you know, sort of touristy, science-y stuff. Mm. So, those and, like, you know, the balls, the physics balls that would hit each other. And, like, I remember for some reason there were these, like, plastic bases with a motor on it. And then there would be, like, sort of, like, plastic pipes sticking out of it with bends in it and when you turn it on they'd kind of rotate on their shafts individually so all these like little things <laughs> that you could look at and like uh remember those wave uh things that they would sell oh at Spencer yeah Gifts with the, with the, like with the oil mineral yeah yeah mineral so they would sell that kind of st- it was all this kind of like pseudo sciencey it was over stuff. this stuff was over at centorium too right yeah i'm sure by the 80s it was yeah yeah so it's just like, so. wasn't there like, I feel like always two, three, four pages in like the Sears wish book that had all this junk <laughs> in it. Like I yeah. remember seeing a full page on the roller coaster and the little garbage below it. I mean, it, not to take off on a tangent here, but you know, one of the things that I was, I was really trying to think back of is, you know, we're very accustomed now to Disney having, uh, I think we have this perception that since Disney has a lot of its own merchandise, that it's different from when you go to an amusement park. But during, you know, the 70s and 80s and even into the early 90s, a lot of the stuff that you would see there in some of the gift shops was like, it was very typical amusement park mm. stuff. You know, there's a magic shop. It's like there was a place where they would make saltwater taffy. There is, you know, you could buy hats. So like a lot of the things were not unique to Disney. It was like very normal things that you would find at any amusement park or very touristy destination. So it's like the kind yeah. of toys. All, all, all of those uh, milk glass uh mugs yeah like any amusement park you went to would have the logo of the park and then you could get it with mom or dad or your name on it and so they always had that kind of stuff but you know we talked about that with the treasure craft yep that you know the treasure craft uh ceramic stuff that they sold in the in the resort gift shops and in the park gift shops uh which was one of the higher end nicer things I mean, flea marketing, I find them in almost identical designs for tourist destinations for, you know, Chicago Mm. or Niagara Falls or, you know, San Francisco, or you can find that stuff all over the place. So it was just, that was the nature of tourism souvenirs back then. I mean, you you got thimbles, you got pins, you got shot glasses, you got, and Disney was no different. They had all the same stuff. Yeah, I think you even used to be able to buy those little... Those firecrack, like those little popping firecracker things that you throw on mm-hmm. the ground. It's like, oh, yeah, I yeah. think you could buy those in the magic shop. I mean, it was very, <laughs> and of course, like the invisible dogs and like, it was, you know, it was all the hokey tourist stuff across the board. So yeah, great time. I love, you know, love that time. Very different. Escort, escorting flower for your yes. hotel. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, okay. So uh, this is not the uh, 
souvenir episode, but that's a good. <laughs> it shows that man, we could do a whole other episode on souvenirs. Yeah, we did. We 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 did ephemera and souvenirs a while back. It's probably time to do another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you, Top Jimmy. That's a good one. Uh, next up, Sean Doyle. He says, "I have to know if I'm dreaming this up, Buzz, but was Morgana the fortune teller in the Fiesta Fun Center in the '70s? I waited to hear her name, but no mention. Please help." Me out, Sean. How? That's all you. Was it Morgana? And the answer is yes. Uh, and I know this for a fact because uh, our friends over at Widen Your World actually have pictures of Morgana, and I believe he has quite a bit of a write up about her uh, in his Fiesta Fun Center page. Um, the cool thing about Morgana, if if you guys look this up on the go, everybody stop, go search on your phones and find this. It was kind of like a fortune telling machine, but the mm-hmm. gag was inside of the glass ball was basically the same kind of setup as Madame Leota in The Haunted Mansion. So there was like a a glass ball and inside was a head and then rear projected on the head was this face that would talk to you. So when you got your fortune, it would light up and she would actually say your fortune to you through the face. So it was very spooky and a lot of people are, were like always freaked out by it, but it was a very cool Give machine. Give me a quarter, I'll tell you your fortune. It looked super 1960s, <laughs> like yeah. computery 19... It's a really fantastic looking machine. <laughs> well, we'll put a picture of that because I just saw it and it's... Yeah, it is very creepy, but it mm-hmm. looks... It almost reminds me of those... Uh, what are those machines where you, they make you... They mold the, you know, the things, the moldorama or whatever. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It does have it that feel... Yeah, that similar look, but definitely a pretty cool looking. So we'll post that picture. Well, thank you, uh, Sean, for that. Next up, we have Michael McClure. Michael says, greetings and salutations from the great state of Wisconsin. Send us some cheese, Michael. I love yes. cheese. Yes, uh, fresh curds, <laughs> preferably. Yes. Uh, I have never so, written. So wait, that 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 is an absolute, like, former travel gift if so yeah. we've talked about the if somebody went to florida you got a gift of citrus if somebody went to wisconsin you got a tray of cheese yep uh where else come on throw something else out at me uh oh you bring back sourdough bread from from san francisco from san francisco yeah, saltwater taffy from the jersey shore yep and the one thing that you can buy at every tourist destination come on guys you should know it. no matter where you go you can always buy saltwater taffy fud, fudge Fudge, yes. Fudge. Fudge and Why that is everywhere. And, yeah. yeah. Like, it can be like, like a sweet treat on the road, you know? My grandmother yeah. would bring it back. It's like, I can get that down the road. Why did you bring me fudge? <laughs> bring, bring me citrus. Well, it depends because if you're in New England and you get panouche fudge, you can't get that anywhere else. Because <laughs> nobody else knows how to make it. They're the only ones that sell panouche. So huh. look, look it up, one. folks. Will do. All right. Well, Michael, so uh, thanks for writing. No, I'm just kidding. That, uh, <laughs> Michael uh, says he's never written to a show before, but he just uh, binge listened to all 50 episodes. Fantastic oh place to start. Of the podcast while working in his office and thought uh, he should thank us for creating such incredible content. Uh, so he kind of goes on to tell some uh, different stories about his first visits, how often he goes back. He just wanted to tell us thank you for bringing us listeners back to what it was like because now I feel like I actually was there. Uh, you guys do such amazing work and wishing us nothing but success. So thanks for the kind words, Michael. We always appreciate those nice emails. All right, so my breaking news. If you guys recall, we've had this come up maybe once, maybe twice before the infamous... Uh, Storm Along Bay question. People yes. are asking us, um, I think it was one part, gosh, I, lo- I forget the name now, I'm sorry, but it, it, go back an episode, we talked about this. 
the the question was was there ever real fish to swim with in Stormalong Bay? Last week we said no. We kind of just said there's no way. That's not true. Well, we had two separate emails to discuss this. Uh, the first one was from Patrick Birkins. Patrick and I discussed back and forth some various things, but he says uh, this about the Stormalong Bay fish. While listening to your latest show, someone asked about the fish in the pools of Stormalong Bay. This was true. They planned for a river ride where you could float and snorkel with freshwater fish, not saltwater. So I think we kind of, we didn't really think freshwater for some reason. Yeah, we were going salt all the way. Yeah. Um, Stormalong Bay has three separate areas. And when you look, and, or if you know the pool, um, it's the one right right in the middle. Um, that's where they were supposed to be because the one on the one side is this, the sandy part and the other one is for where the slide spits out and then it goes from there. Um, it has its own filtering system, and the water has pumps moving the water in one direction, and people put tubes in there now. So I haven't seen this, but maybe it is sort of lazy river style now because it was supposed to be it, like a current. It does have a loop in it. It's the only one that has a loop. I just sent you guys a picture because he also sent in an overhead Google shot. So take a look in the chat. We'll, we'll post this picture too. Mm-hmm. It was right there in that center area. So look at that. So next up, he says, uh, "Here's we're going still. We stayed in the resort May 1990, which only cost 89 bucks back then. Uh, one of the lifeguards was there setting the pool up prior to the grand opening, said they couldn't balance the pH levels in the water. Uh, they would put the fish in the next morning. They would find tons of floaters the next morning. Uh, Disney managed figure waking up, going out on your deck and looking at, uh, down, seeing the dead fish was bad for a high end hotel. Yep. So that is from Patrick. Thank you so much, Patrick. We appreciate that insight now. And don't forget, he also, he sent in a shot, a screenshot of it in the burn bomb book. Yeah, it yeah. Says it says a unique snorkeling experience, bass and crappies and other indigenous freshwater fish. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's that was, was legit. Mm-hmm. Um, next one here, same thing. We had uh, you, it's amazing. We put a question out. We get all these responses. David Carver wrote us, and he says he can confirm they didn't plan to create a shark reef type area in Stormlong Bay. He says they stayed there right after uh, the pool opened, and they left an apology letter in his room saying that they hoped uh, they could make it work or why it wasn't working. He said, I'll get back to you. Well, believe it or not, David found the letter and sent it to us. It's uh, directly from the GM of the hotel. Um, what year did he say and this we was? Found the GM. Yeah, <laughs> we found the GM. Yeah, we found the too, GM, too. Which, which we will, yeah, we'll say his name here, and if you know it, let him know we want to talk to him. Um, He's in Mexico City, so. Yeah, we, we got Skype. He's, here's the letter. Dear, and I'll post this, we'll post it on the show notes. Dear resort guests, we're very happy that you've chosen us, blah, 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 blah. The centerpiece of our resort is Stormlong Bay, a three-acre pool. When we planned this resort, we intended to have a snorkeling lagoon where guests could swim among the fish. Although this feature has been advertised for a variety of reasons, we are not able to offer this particular experience. Please be assured that all of our other features of this special area, including our whirlpools, bubbling jets, rising sands, and water slide are all available. Uh, thank you, Antonio Torres, GM of... So- uh, Ted, Mr. Documents here. Like, what's that letter worth? Uh, I probably to a collector, I'm going to say maybe $30. Oh, <laughs> wow. Get that puppy insured. <laughs> 20 to 30 if it was at auction. What if it guess. had a photo of some dead fish from one of the morning cleanouts? Uh, $50. I, 
So that's uh, David. Thank you, David, for that. Um, so listener mail, if you have something for the mailbag, podcast at retrowdw.com. Send us a message. Send us a tweet. Uh, we get it all. We read it all. Uh, there's a chance you could get on the show, but uh, anytime you uh, know, hear something or you know, think of something to tell us for sure, let us know. All right. Well, it's time for this month's Audio Rewind. Um, how you've been... St- Setting them up pretty good here, and after uh, you 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 uh, caused everybody to take a tumble uh, last month, you bought them back uh, this month. You got over a hundred or so, more than a hundred. Thank yeah, goodness. So Thank goodness. You 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 hit some here. All right. So before we give the answer, let's take a listen to last month's audio rewind. But you gotta check out the rap. And if you guessed food rapper from Food Rocks, you are correct. And guys, that was voiced by none other than. Come on. <laughs> nobody does nobody uh, know it was tone loke oh tone loke do you remember do you remember please, him, please play some right now in the back let's let's take a listen Long to come on i mean it was it was literally that song jt yeah oh it was <laughs> it was yes. they, they really the didn't do much to disguise it that was the whole yeah. purpose of food rocks was he was rock. also in the disney movie blank check uh if what, I don't know, oh. the same year. Maybe he was under huh. a little Disney contract, for perhaps. There, there it's funny go. how those yeah. connections... It's I always thought, like, uh, like you see Paul Rubens in Flight of the Navigator and then suddenly shows up in Star Tours. And I, right. and I think there's some sort of, like, well-thought-out connection of, like, oh, someone said, like, we'll have you do that, and then we'll have you do that. And then I read, like, these little stories about how, like... The guy who was in charge of casting for for Star Tours went to go see like the studio preview of Flight of the Navigator and thought like, oh, that guy's got a great voice. I should I should hire him for Star Tours and see if he'll do it. But it wasn't figured out ahead of time. It just kind of like spills over like from one thing to another. So but it is yep. it's always funny how like somebody does something for Disney and then suddenly they're doing something else for Disney and then something else for Disney. So I'm sure there was some kind of unintended connection between Blank Check and and uh food rocks goes to show you never burn your bridges kids that's right that's right that's right so we do have a winner congratulations to christian kandari so he got that correct so we'll send that out and what are you getting a poster as well as some additional retro wdw swag that we've got lined up here so um we need a prize for this month and i've uh, got some additional older disney news and some uh random ephemera from the parks that i'm gonna throw in so We'll get that out along with some retro WW stickers. And if you know the answer to this month's audio rewind. All right. If you think you know the answer to this month's audio rewind, send your guesses to contest at retrowdw.com. All entries must be received by August 15th, 2019. All correct entries will be entered into a random drawing to win this month's prize. All right, and JT, we have something else to give away this month too. You had a onesie. Uh, yes, my son was Andrew. Grew a, he grew, grew out of it. Already. His gargantuan son. What's, never, what's the weigh in this month? At yeah, uh, put him up on the scale. Months. I think he's around twenty-two pounds now. <laughs> he's a big cat. He's a big guy. He's yeah. teething now, so we're not getting much sleep. Seven months sleep regression. So oh. uh, it's and that ties to all the emails I got because I, I last month I said, hey, I have the speed ramp onesie designed by How Bowers. Uh, he was planning to wear it this summer, but it doesn't fit him. Not how, my baby. And uh, <laughs> he uh, he never put it on, so it's brand new. And I said, hey, just email me if you want it. I got a, a probably 10, 
to 15 emails just to people saying they're going to have a kid soon, uh, you know, asking, being nice, whatever. Um, so you have all that to look forward to. But my winner through randomly selecting uh, Matt Gaz, G-A-H-S. Matt, uh, you are the winner. Uh, he says he uh, heard you have a onesie. We have a little one on the way due in November, and we'd love to dress uh, him in, or them, they don't know what it is yet, it looks like, in some LBVHS swag. So thank you, Matt. Uh, I'll shoot you an email here, get back to you. Um with your address and all your contact info and everybody else. Uh, congratulations on the babies coming best of luck. And uh, thanks for listening to the show and entering the contest. There we go. Thanks a lot, JT. All right. So before we get into the main topic, um, we want to kind of remind everybody what's going on with, with retro magic. And then JT's got something additional that, that we've added in. So um, Brian, why don't you, you, you say it the best. Explain to people, if they haven't heard by now and haven't listened to us, what are they in for with Retro Magic? You are in for a stupendous, supercalifragilistic, fantastic, wonderful, good time. <laughs> uh, all as in we one. Celebrate, uh, all in one as we celebrate our fifth anniversary and our twisted obsession with this resort theme park mecca. Uh, in central Florida. Uh, so what we've got lined up, uh, we're going to skip the Saturday night event because that's been sold out. <laughs> sold for out. Months. Thank so you to everybody who purchased tickets. That went we quick. won't entice you with details about an event you can't go to. Uh, if, you, but if you are at Epcot that night, say hello, I guess. Maybe wave at us. And connect. <laughs> if you can find us. Yeah. If you can find us, we'll be in the uh, on the, one of the islands on World Showcase Lagoon in the center. If you can get a boat out there and find us, <laughs> that's where we'll be. Uh, but no, Sunday, 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 at Co Raceway uh, on at October, or I'm sorry, Sunday, October 13th yep. at the Contemporary Resort Hotel. Uh, we in the ballroom of the Americas, we are hosting Retro Magic, our fifth anniversary celebration. It is a day long event starting at 9 30 in the morning. It includes a luncheon buffet uh, with the original 100% genuine handwich. And these weren't uh, on was, ice for the past 20 years. These, <laughs> these were not. These are special order. In fact, we started working with the food service team this week. And we lucked out because when I sent my very detailed specifications uh, to work with the chefs on, uh, Todd and I lucked out that our rep is uh, her first job at Disney 28 years ago was in the land farmer's market scooping and filling handwiches. No, no way. Yeah. Yes. 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 Is that so not cool? That's news. That's she immediately She immediately started laughing, saying, I not only know what you're talking about, I have, she said, I literally filled thousands of those things. <laughs> I spoke so, with her on the phone, and she said she read it, and she literally started laughing out loud. And so we have the best person to be on this for us. Yeah. She said, yeah, what's so. wrong with you as well? <laughs> no, she was totally psyched. No. She understood. Man, That's this awesome. Is, this, this is weird. They're, they're all secretly rooting for us. It's all know? locking they, in. Yeah, yeah, it's all locking in. But it's not just about the food. No. Uh, this day, it's a $100 ticket. And what that gets you is a full day, lunch included, presentations from Disney legends like Bob Gurr. Uh, Disney legend Bob Gurr uh, worked with Walt Disney. And Bob's famous tagline is, if it moves in Disneyland, I probably designed it. Uh, he built 
cars and trains and monorails and stuff from scratch. Uh, modified them, and he is a terrific, terrific presenter and interviewer uh, and raconteur in general with the fans. Our friend Disney legend Tom Nabby returning with us this time. Uh, One of Walt's last hires in the park there is Tom Sawyer in Disneyland, and he's been with the company uh, ever since. Uh, And the panels of the men who built Epcot and... Uh, was the lead opener on the monorail when the when the resort opened, and he's got more stories. He'll forget more stories than we'll ever remember or get out of him. Uh, we have a retired Imagineer, recently retired Imagineer Tom K. Morris, after a 30-plus year career with the company, uh, involved in everything from Disneyland and Epcot Center and Disneyland Paris uh, and Disney California Adventure, and he's got fascinating, fascinating stories that he shares with us and a treasure trove of pictures that he took of these attractions as they were being built uh, and stories that go along with them. We've got Michael Campbell coming uh, from the Carrollwood Pacific Society to come and talk to us about the Fort Wilderness Railroad and the history of trains. Michael's working hard on his presentation right now. He, I'm not even a train guy, but I could sit and listen to him for three hours. So he's a great presenter. You'll you'll recall we didn't we did an episode with him uh, earlier this year or last year I don't recall uh, we actually interviewed him off air and and used a lot of the content in in our own that's correct yep that's correct so uh, we have that last but well not last but last amongst the legends workers for the company I don't want to leave out our exclusive interview with Roly Crump uh, Roly and Bob Gurr uh, would qualify as the last original Imagineers who worked with Walt uh, that are still with us. And uh, so we wanted to bring Rolly uh, to us in person, but Rolly is at a stage of life now where he doesn't travel anymore and he's based in Southern California. So we brought Retro Disney World to him and we flew out and recorded an interview with him that uh, is being edited currently and that will be shown exclusively. Uh, And you're going to learn a lot of great stuff there because Rolly had a big hand in some of your favorite attractions at Walt Disney World, uh, in the Magic Kingdom, and in Epcot Center. Uh, so that is edge-of-your-seat kind of stuff. We've yeah. got some cool experiences planned uh, related to some of these uh, that are going to be exclusive for you guys that, are, that attend the event. Uh, and that's not all. Uh, we've got music. Todd, why don't you tell them a little bit of the music? Yeah, so we have uh, a couple musical acts coming into play. Uh, Tammy Tucky, who uh, she's been on the show before, and she put out her her album uh, where she got permission to re-record some songs. She will be bringing with her Ali Olmo, the original recording artist of Two Brothers in the, at the American Adventure. So they're going to perform that song. Singer-songwriter Lisa Bastoni is also confirmed to join us. Uh, she is the granddaughter of Walter Einzel, who designed the Age of Information exhibit over in Futurecom. And um, she'll be joining us and also singing um, the, the song to that attraction, which we recently learned some very interesting information about and we'll reveal at the event. So, And we also, Brian, we can't forget, from the movie side of things, we have producer and director Jeff Blythe joining us, too. So he'll be talking all about how Circle Vision 360 films are made and the trials and tribulations. Um, he's got some great stories that we did not talk about uh, on the podcast interview with him about um, shooting in China and some of the other challenges that 
360 and nine cameras gets you. So, so it is going to be. Oh, we got Ron Schneider too. Do we mention Ron Schneider? He's no, joining. We haven't us too. mentioned him yet. No, we yeah. haven't mentioned him yet. And Jim Sarno. Disney Imagine your Jim Sarno is going to be there. We have some tons of surprises. Ron Logan. My goodness, the the list goes on. It's going to be a so, jam packed. How are you going to do this yeah. in one day? It doesn't even make any sense. It's we'll find out day. together. You got three hours. That's it, Hal. <laughs> it is going to be a very long nine to five day. That's for sure. And uh, we have a lot. We have a giant to do list that we're working on. There's a lot for all of us to take care of and, and get going on it. Uh, and we're looking forward to seeing everybody uh, in October. So there's plenty of tickets still available. We've it'll be in the contemporary ballroom of the Americas, A and B side. As Brian said in one of our other episodes, it's not just going to have, it's going to have really going to be a double A side. So all, all prime content, no, no deep cuts here. And um, uh, you can get your tickets at retromagic.net. And as Brian pointed out, they're $100 per person, and that includes your lunch, the entire day, and a special gift. And we're just going to say it'll be awesome. We'll leave it at that. All right, now to go along with that, JT, you've been working with somebody uh, to make some special custom things with a few different uh, designs on them. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about what we've got available now? Yeah, you know, I thought, my first thought was, well, we're, we we have the shirts, uh, retro, wdw.com forward slash support us if you want to get a retro magic shirt, um, you know, to wear the event, whatever. Um, and then I, I kind of always see this company pop up randomly. Uh, they do basically custom uh, overlays for your magic band, which everybody's wearing now, and we get it's not retro, but at the same time, um, you know, if you have a magic band, why not make it retro? Why not make it fun to either match the event or match your favorite podcast or your favorite society? So the cool people at magicyourband.com, they did a little collaboration with us. They designed for us uh, four different magic bands. We have one for retro magic, we have two for Retro WDW, and we also have one for the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. They're six bucks, and they basically just stick onto your Magic Band, but it's kind of a cool little thing. So if you're in the parks and you know you want to spruce up your Magic Band to uh, show your support, check them out, uh, magicyourband.com. And like I said, the Retro Magic one would be a, a awesome little add-on for the event if you're coming yeah. in October. And the great part is, is when the event's over, you can just rip it off and go back to your normally scheduled programming and colors. Exactly. <laughs> so, or continue to promote us. We'll take that too. Yeah, so. yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, JT. No problem. All right, well, it's time for the main topic this month, which is part three of Horizons, the legacy. So we have a couple things to accomplish here before we talk about the eventual demise, the destruction, uh, and really what legacy did it leave in our, our hearts and minds. But if you remember last month, how you and I were up late burning the midnight oil, JT and Brian had gone to bed and we... We're so exhausted. What it was like one thirty a.m. when I think we finally finished something yeah. like something ridiculous. Did we? Is that how it went? It's like <laughs> it a went late. It went late. It was nearly four plus hours of recording time, and that I edited down to three fifty. You guys were dreaming it while we were doing it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So how and I stepped off the. Actually, we didn't even really fully get off the ride. Um, we said, "Oh, there's a little bit more here." We we ended it. 
And uh, so how we've got a little bit to catch up on. Then we have to talk about walking out of the exit um, and then everything about the mural and all that. So let's get back in our ride vehicles here. But we're going to actually go backwards because we had a listener write in. I, I forget the gentleman's name. Maybe you have it handy. Um, and, and a lot of people want to know how the ending system worked, where you choose, you, you chose your own adventure there at the end. Um, and I jokingly said, you know, I read it a couple times. I don't understand how it works. But how has sat down with engineers. He still has his looks like he's got his uh, mechanical pencils and all of his <laughs> protractors. He's figured this out and he's going to explain to us tonight how the choose your own adventure area, uh, choose your own ending, I should say worked out so how what do we what do we have here well and it's pretty well explained in uh in george mcginnis's book too and it's it's quite uh, and i think the the person who asked us the question is like does it work like the harry potter uh uh ride where like the screen travels along with you mm. and this is the crazy thing and again i this is 1982 right um what they did was they had they had a brand new kind of a, of a projector from GE. So it was new video, you know, higher resolution video projector technology. Um, the screen didn't move. I think it was called the Telerian, that's by it. the way. That's it. Thank you. Yes. So the screen didn't move. There's basically kind of like a, like a circle, like a, I don't know, what's the word? Like a spherical, like a spherical screen in front yeah. of you that your car would go around. And what it did was when you, when you picked out, what one that you wanted the projector would actually there was some sort of computer control in the projector and it would actually project uh the image in front of your car and it knew how long it took you to get from your car you know from where you start to the other end and i think it might have actually might have used two projectors i'm not sure if it was just one or if it was two but the image would actually travel in front of your car like they would stack them up and then kind of digitally move these these sequences with you so the projector itself wasn't moving it wasn't like it there was a mirror that was like altering where the projection was and a bunch of pro it was literally like one projector and it would stack them up kind of like side by side in memory if you will and then move them along as you picked them so that's the reason that really the flaps needed to be there was because the the one the image uh, for the car next to you would literally be right there next to the one that you were looking at side by side. And I think it was one of the engineers that were working on it was like, oh, that's kind of distracting. Originally, they didn't have them. And then someone said like, oh, we should really have some kind of baffle or something there. So that way you can't see the one that's next to you since they're all simultaneously running at one time. And it so just, you're saying that you went into that one. How many don't this is the single dome? Like one yeah. Omnimax screen. How many cars were in there at one time showing? Uh, I like, were there like four across? I want to say or? like 12 to 16 at one time. I don't yeah. have the. So there was thing 12 to 16 movies showing it, at once. Same, same, yeah, same time. So this is wow. really, really big technology for that. And, and you could tell when you moved from one projector to the other because it would be this almost like a Star Wars wipe yeah. across the screen that didn't, but, and the colors weren't perfect. So the colors would slightly change from muted to, or to more saturated. Yeah, it was probably. Interesting. As, and I think that's why it also kind of looked a little bit more low resolution in that area, mm. because it wasn't like the full resolution of the projector being put in front of you. It was actually, you know, a segment <laughs> of that. So if it was like, right. a, yeah, so you were seeing like a bit of pixels, like in the overall screen. I can read the official description oh. from the Horizons Ride Control System Manual published by 
Imagineers. That would be perfect because that's the one that blew my mind, and I was I left frazzled. But go ahead. Uh, the traveling video finale show area provides a conclusion to the ride. 19 picture frames moving on a track are synchronized with the ride vehicles such that seven frames are aligned with the seven ride vehicles in the scene at any one time. Seven TV projectors are used to rear project mm. images on a 50 foot wide, wide screen behind the moving frames. The pictures being projected are electronically wiped from projector to projector in synchronization with the moving frames. This system allows continuous viewing of a framed show scenario projected from the TV projectors while the vehicles continue to be in motion. There you go. So you can remove everything I said, Todd, because that's yeah, the right exactly. answer. So it's rear projection. That means like rear behind the screen or? It was like a CRT Correct. projected. Not across. rear behind the car, but rear. No, okay. rear behind the screen. Yes. Yeah. Boy, so this like you imagine all this going on and all this syncing and movement and stuff like Am I wrong in saying Soren's kind of simple in comparison? <laughs> yeah, you move the vehicle and let let everything yeah, like else one video, and I see feet dangling in front of me. There's no <laughs> flaps or anything. Yeah, man. I mean, I don't know if you ever saw that little behind the scenes thing, but like the guy that invented the Soren system basically built it out of Tinker Toys. Yeah, first set. to like yeah to like make sure that it would now, work. There's one major difference though. If you get the center seat. Mesa Verde looks straight up and down. It doesn't get bent. So, <laughs> <laughs> so as opposed to sword, but cool. Well, there we go. So a little, a little detail and, and uh, Ted, tell the people a little bit more about this document. Cause I think we linked to it and we can certainly link to it again. This is a heavy detailed maintenance manual. Uh, you know, there's a lot. It, I see you holding it there. It's like, a, this is the one I was referencing, like 50 some pages. It is 50, it's 55 pages. It's called Specification Horizons Ride Control System. It's a very technical manual. It has all the uh, electric and technical specifications that power the vehicle, all the the uh, specific part names. There's torque and duty cycle, acceleration, decelerization. It's a very technical to say exactly what powered it and how the uh, ride ran with diagrams uh, all throughout. And uh, it is fascinating. It's, you know, it's very in the weeds, and it's not a fun read, but for those who are really engineers, I think they'll get a lot out of it. Or if you just have a hankering to build it again and bring it back. <laughs> yeah, you, Ted, yeah. at least you Ted can build has the, the blueprints. <laughs> yeah, we I have a, can, I talk, can I bring up a topic about the, the ending that I'd like to yeah. get your opinions on? Sure. I was always confused. Why... In this, in each one, you're traveling from underwater to an underwater port, a spaceport to a spaceport, a land port to a land port. Why didn't each one start in land, space, or sea, and go back to future port? I never understood the logic. <laughs> yeah, of going with the, I, it always like right. You didn't get anywhere. Me. And what's funny <laughs> right. is I think the voiceover actually specifically says that you're going to pick the way yes. to get back to future port. I think right. that's probably what led to my confusion. Is it says that, but it doesn't depict that. Maybe or were those supposed to be the yeah? It, it, but it would be cool if you landed in something in that film said future port, you know, Mesa Verde right. future port. It's like Soren at the end of Soren, you come back to Disneyland, right? You know, you land. So I was always imagine that here. Maybe you're right. Maybe that's the future port of, but you don't start in the future port. You do of, in the queue though at the ride, right? Isn't no? That, but I'm saying you don't. We don't start in a sea, land, or space, right? It's future port is one right, place, right, right. right. So, so if, if you're under sea, it should bust out and and, and come yes. back to Epcot. Or if it's in 
desert turns into or space you right. come out of the atmosphere and yeah it should all come back to a futuristic orlando or a future port some depiction of future port so i'm that's not right. crazy in thinking that that's not it should that should have been that way right and it should have been it, it i'm sh- glad they closed it now <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know it's it, ted it's one of those things that when we look back on it like we're doing on these episodes all of a sudden this storytelling that was going on you start to see um, the breaks and, and maybe the inconsistencies that were there, or maybe some of the budget cut caused it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering how many people would ever pick up on that too. I mean, we're being nerds. We're sitting here and we're, we're critiquing something that doesn't exist anymore down to the nth degree, but how many people really picked it up that you were departing future for it? You know what I mean? I mean, I have to hand it to you because I, you know, I rode that thing. I don't know how many times, but like, and that thought never occurred to me. And you're all 100 percent right about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you completely. I've missed that whole thing. And you're te- you're 100 percent right, Ted. That is a story inconsistency that makes no sense. And yep. I'm not, of course, knocking the ride. It's just when you love something this much, you care about the details. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And Absolutely. so much work went into that shooting those sequences. Yes. I have some information on that. So um, David Jones, a special effects veteran of Star Wars, spent two years designing uh, all three of those um, film shoots. The Famously, the one that was the most elaborate was the desert one. It involved an 86-foot model and was the longest continuous sequence ever done with miniatures to that time. And it was all done with a computer track. So there's a computer that guided that entire desert uh, ride uh, that you're following so that the, it could completely keep the camera from showing a shadow over the desert models. And it was 31 seconds of film for two years worth of work. So as much as we are mocking their a little bit, their storytelling, maybe inconsistency, they spent all, so much time to make a, such a small amount of film, but of course became an iconic part of the ride. Absolutely. Uh, and so, yes, they were dedicated to making that experience uh really remarkable i mean can you imagine today the, that company the walt disney company that we know today spending two years to make 15 <laughs> seconds of some attraction like right who would do that today that it makes no like in today's climate like that would never be done and like when people and we'll get to this later on it's like what was the things about or like horizons that really got us it's like the amount of work that went into making the tiniest little bits of that are just mind-boggling. Right, right. And it was a time where that stuff just wasn't easily done. Right, right. So you had to go through those There's no CGI. You just, yeah. They spared Um, none of GE's expense. (laughs) That's right. That's right. (laughs) Um, I have one of our listeners, Ben Rideau, was kind enough to send uh, me an interchange, uh, an exchange that he had with uh, some of the folks that worked on that. And we're going to try to get in contact with him to do an interview. Um, But this is just fascinating. So he talked to um, two guys who worked on it, Rusty Geller and uh, Peter Anderson. And um, they were um, cinematographers that worked on that section. So um, I'm going to read a little bit of of what Rusty had to say. He said, I worked on... To choose your tomorrow, I was one of the two camera assistants on the project. The director of photography was Peter Anderson, ASC, uh, and he'd be the person to ask like a lot of detailed questions for. Um, he said both he and another fellow that did the computer programming, um, they used a system called ACES, 
um, which was developed for the black hole. And they had another system um, that also had a person's name that was um, basically like a humongous uh, I'm trying to describe this. It's like where aces was like a single arm with a camera on it. This was actually like a U shape with tracks on the two sides. So it could stay perfectly still as a, as it went back and forth. Um, so those two guys worked on the filming for six to nine months. Uh, this gentleman was there for two weeks. He shot the Arizona farm set and the underwater set. Um, he said it was built in a large hangar at the Burbank airport. His job was to manage the film camera and the lens and the walk, uh, walk the rig through the moves as they did the programming. And then later during the filming, he said it was a 35 millimeter Mitchell with a snorkel lens hanging at 90 degrees down and another 90 degrees mount that took it back to horizontal so the lens could penetrate deep into the set. It used Nikon still lenses, which were still common back then. Um, and then, um, oh, he had twin, twin towers that rode on parallel tracks on either side of the set and a cross beam spanning the set so the camera mount could travel side to side and up and down and the camera could pan, tilt, and roll. Um, and, uh, the computer that drove it lived in a house trailer on stage next on the stage next to the set because the computer <laughs> was so big. <laughs> he said he was a, a diver and, uh, he still shoots underwater and he took a lot of interest in the underwater sequence. He said it was shot in smoke to simulate being underwater. So they would actually fill the set <sighs> with smoke particles to make it look more dense. The hours, the runs, so when the camera went through, would run through, were an hour plus each at one frame a second. So the problem was, how do you keep the smoke consistent for that long? He said the grips built a smoke mixing room adjacent to the set. It had black visqueen plastic walls. There were infrared sensors along the set that measured the density of the smoke. And when it started to get thin, a grip would open a big door next to the smoke mixing room <laughs> and waft more smoke into the set. The grips were on handsets. Camera was on handsets. Art department was on, on, on headsets. Uh, camera was on headsets. Art department was headsets. Lighting was on headsets. When shooting the set, it had the atmosphere of being in a NASA control room. He said he was on a headset behind the camera on all the runs. So if he felt like it went head, haywire, he could stop it before damage was done to either the camera or the models. Um, there were video monitors, they were dark and fuzzy in those days. So he had the best view of the house. So he, he actually rode on the apparatus as it was doing its <laughs> filming. Um, and we, we have, a, we have a picture of it in that we have a whole gallery actually on the finale ending models, which, which you can take a look at and see these. So, um, we'll, we'll make sure we, we add that to the, to the show notes. Oh, it's amazing. Cause the sets are huge. I mean, oh, they're massive giant. Yeah, I mean, they like, they dwarf the people. It's like, I always think of shooting miniatures and you know, they're like, Oh, tiny, but like the, the underwater, like the bottom of the underwater sets are like 30 feet tall. It's like they, they tower over the people. Um, yeah. and he said the underwater set was actually built at a mixed scale so they could give, uh, the set extra dimensions. And he said the transitions between the scales were hidden in smoke. So it's just such care and attention and love put into this sequence. Um, just phenomenal. So there's two things in one of the pictures I want people to be aware of. But what's great is that a picture of the Mesa Verde desert scene, you can see the whole camera rig and everything. Um, in the front, there's coffee cups that are span probably like, they look 50 feet tall because <laughs> they're sitting on there. Uh, and the other thing is, is that up at the top, I don't know what this is, but the, this might be the name that they gave to the camera rig. It yes. says El Elmer. Elmer, yep. 
Elmer was the camera rig. So, so it was named after I was uh, Elmer Gantry, I think is gotcha. a movie. Isn't Elmer Gantry a movie in a book? Uh, Ted, you were right. Elmer Gantry was the name of a 1950s Burke Lancaster movie. So right, and I think they sent a book from the 20s. There you go. Or something. So yeah, yep. that was a that was their joke. What we would give to visit that that set, right? It would be incredible. And and the the undersea set was even more ridiculously large. The the because it was almost I don't want to say life size, but it was built ridiculously large. Um, much much bigger than 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 the desert the desert set. I just sent you guys to take a picture. I mean, look look at the size of the set compared to the people. It's yeah, just, I saw that picture. Is amazing. It is unbelievable. All right, so after we arrive back somewhere, but not Futureport, um, <laughs> we are treated to the final scene, which is a a wall of fiber optics that was really neat because it was, if I recall, how the the wall was slightly curved, right? I, Wasn't it slightly curved? I think probably as you were coming around to go back to the unload, yeah. yeah. It might have been, but what was really neat is the way these fiber optics were. You would see them at their brightest when you were straight onto them, and as you came up, they just had this sparkly look, and they were kind of started as a smaller point, and they went fanned out and out and out and out, and how you can describe it better, because then you have some funny stories about what happened. Well, that, I, that is a perfect way to describe it. So as as you're going through this section, and you know what? I don't know if there's a recording of this, uh, because I wish there were, because because uh, all of my recordings were post, you know, after GE left. But I, I believe the person, um, the the same person that would did the like the unload spiel, came on and said, you know, thank you for writing GE Horizons, and they actually mentioned the stuff. And I believe then they said something about like gathering your personal belongings, and there was a neat little music track. And yes, as you said, there's you know, Disney was huge on using fiber optics back then so the uh like the fiber optic uh fireworks in kitchen cabaret and in uh maelstrom and in um uh, the mexico rio del de tiempo oh yeah yeah the fireworks it's like they, yeah. they had fantastic uh fiber optic effects so it, as you said it's, it started with this little wispy thing and then it would kind of grow and get bigger and bigger and then at the end of it was a giant fiber optic ge logo Yep, and I now what we'll we'll have to try to find out was is this one of those things that was added on, and as an attempt to like push the idea that GE was the sponsor because we know that uh oh ah, nice you actually do have a picture of it we we have and we have video of it too oh, okay. the uh, the famous go sniff an orange and watch this video on retrowww.com has the GE oh, logo perfect. at the ending so yep. I, I don't. I'm trying to remember now if it was not there and then they added it because I, I think I, I think I remember it being added and then one day going like, Oh my God, where did this fiber optic thing come from? <laughs> so I think this was part of the thing where they did the, the surveys afterwards and the people didn't associate GE with it. So they're like, let's put a giant, let's put a big fricking GE logo at the end of it. So you can't miss <laughs> out on it. But the funny thing was, and it was really neat that like the little lights would build and anticipate and would basically take you into the GE logo and the GE logo would spin on and appear. Really great effect. Well, after GE stopped sponsoring it, they turned off the GE logo, but left on the rest of the fiber optic thing. So as you were riding by, you saw like these fiber optics like come up and build and then they would go into nothing. <laughs> so... <laughs> it was really strange that they left the whole thing on, but I guess otherwise you would have just been staring at a black wall right. before the unload ramp. 
but ta-da nothing yeah <laughs> so then we depart from our vehicle and um the departure area is very similar to the future port actually it, it, it looked very similar so again we didn't fly back to the future port but you're going to exit it's got the same blue and purple theming and different things out there um and it was a moving walkway and uh you know you look pick up your personal belongings like Hal said and take children firmly by the hand and uh, we would exit out through quite a, a, a maze of exit ramps were really interesting i now i remember them from 86 on so how maybe you can talk about what it was originally but i can only describe in 86 i i felt like there were it was almost like stonehenge <laughs> pillars and things on top and they were all at the wrong angle and they would change color and it was and and you never knew where the end was because you'd make a couple turns and there were always mirrors to in, make you feel like it went on and on forever uh, and you always were reaching out, at least in the version I remember, at the end you constantly saw this plasma ball at the end with the GE logo in it rotating, and you never got there until the very end because of all these mirrors. I don't know, a better way to describe it. It was it was interesting. And No, I think you're right. It always reminded me of, like, is... If the uh, the witch's mine where she would like knock down the pillars in Snow White Scary said, Adventures, yes, yes. it's like a rainbow <laughs> light up version of that of her mind. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, that's and that was that was something that was added uh, again because we went through this whole thing of people not connecting GE with uh, with the attraction and that not coming through. So, um, so that was the second exit. The first one, I think you just kind of walked around the corner, but there was a very large and now very famous or, or infamous mural uh, that hung in there, um, also by Robert McCall. And it, it gave us the, the name of the of our of our episode. It was called The Prologue and the Promise. And I'm going to hand it over to Ted to tell us uh, a little bit about that that mural, because it, it was a absolutely marvelous piece of work. GE used it for the cover of their 1983 annual report. Uh, it's a beautiful foldout of, uh, it's, it's like a tri-page foldout of the mural itself. And it says in the report, the, the, um, this is like the first page of the actual 83 annual report. The prologue and the promise, this spectacular 19 by 60 foot canvas featured in the New Horizons Pavilion at Epcot is the work of famous space science fiction artist Bob, Bob McCall. While the mural depicts humankind's progress for the ages, it focuses on a bright future, a subject we find most appropriate for most for both the cover and the theme of this report. So Disney was really leveraging the uh, the the future of Horizons and what it represented for the future of the company and how they saw um, a big um, uh, a big 
uh, growth spurt coming from both the parks and their films. Um, so the, the mural measures 19 by 60 foot. Uh, according to McCall, it took three months to develop the concept for the mural. He did it in his studio in Paradise Valley, Arizona. The actual f- painting of it took more than six months, uh, which he did at Disney Studios in Burbank. His wife, Louise, helped him. She's an artist in her own right. And he does remember that he finished the mural in March. So the idea was that it represented the flow of, quote, civilized man from the past into the present and toward the future. It shows all the Earth's nationalities, cultures, and religions. The McCall family are also in there. In fact, Hmm. there is a... um, So one of the few Horizons sold pieces of memorabilia at the time is a jigsaw puzzle of the prologue and the promise. I have... I have a copy of the of the jigsaw puzzle, although I discovered after two hours of trying to put it together that it is not complete. But you can oh, spot. Oh, that stinks. Yes, I know. It did stink. Oh, um, no. It was not uh, sealed mint, huh? It was not sealed mint. If it was, I probably wouldn't have opened it. And the seller, I, I didn't either he didn't state that it wasn't or I didn't read it. You know what, though? There is a very, I think we have a copy. We have a very, very high resolution scan of that. So it's quite possible that we can get that to you, and then you can just print out and cut your own little pieces. That sounds like a good use of time. It's it's kind of like you know when you have to repair old art, right? You want to, you know, the Mona Lisa goes in for a cleaning now and then. You know, the promise here has to get a little, you know, little piece fixed. It's a valid point. Yeah. Um, so his family is. Uh, if you look close enough, you can see his daughter Kathy and Linda. They, uh, their husbands and four grandchildren, as well as Louise and myself. So there, it's like uh, two, four, eight of the characters are his own family and also their dog. Um, so you know he was a very famous space artist. This is all he ever wanted to do, and um, his legacy lives on. Although, ironically, you know this 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 um, this painting is so famous, but it didn't last very long. Um, uh, so it is, but it is, he said, while I was working on the mural, um, such as his process was for the mural like horizons, he starts with a sketch. Then he draws a 10 foot master, which he sections off into one inch grids. He takes slides of each of the grids. He projects that onto a mural canvas, and then he sketches a very scaled finest ver- final version. So there's a very elaborate process that he had to develop these things. And clearly it took probably a year or more to get this done it lasts on because uh it is probably the most famous part of horizons that uh if you have an image of it um that's just such an iconic part of it and again the stock cover um the study annual report is uh is uh it featured on the cover of it um but unfortunately most visitors to right road horizons never actually got to see it including myself i was there in 85 i don't think it was there and I, I can actually recall people like kind of stopping and looking at it and looking at the different because like off in the one corner, you can see like Egyptian pyramids and Greek temples. And as you move through the civilizations, it like eventually turns out to be this, you know, giant futuristic cities. So it's, it's really fascinating how that was all done. So I sent you guys a, a, a blueprint that's been out floating around on the Internet that shows where the mural was and then a yellow line showing how that the exit area was changed and i never got to see the mural now it begs the question is that there's space in there to leave the mural and my understanding is that it was taken out you wonder how long it was there um 
but there was some uh, where this came from. I thought we got it this past week or something. I got to find this email now. It's somebody wrote in and, and saying that the mural was actually saved and was deposited somewhere over at the haunted mansion. Hmm. And was rolled up and found back there. That's interesting because the last I had heard, nobody knows of its location, supposedly. Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, it, it, you look, we know they dispose of a lot of things at Disney, but I mean, there are certain things that you think if something went into something that this magnitude and size, it, you would hopefully try to save it. But how yeah. do you how do you roll it up? I mean, you really can't. It's painted on a mall. It's like plaster, you know. Well, at this point, they probably figured out to not stick it onto a wall because of all the the other murals that they have tried to remove over the course of time yeah. and like it wouldn't work so maybe they were smart enough now to not do a permanent attachment uh it's funny because there was this there was this old rumor that was going around as to why it was removed is supposedly uh like one of the the big uh things that people used to say is that michael eisner got into a fight with robert mccall about something like potentially the fact that he included his family in the mural and it was like michael eisner that had specifically like ordered the mural to be removed but yeah that was i mean that was like stuff that people would say on usenet back in the day but i mean at at this point looking at you know the information we have from the actual imagineers it really was just the fact that you know they did uh guest surveys afterwards and people were not making the connection between ge and that attraction and since they spent a lot and a lot of money on it uh you know they they decided to do what they could do um to try to add more of a ge presence so i know they added like ge logos onto certain things like the spaceship that was outside that was building the uh the space station um you know there was the ge logos on the um on the vacuum cleaner that the robot was using so where they had an opportunity to put in a GE logo, they they put in a GE logo, and at the exit of the ride, they put in the most intriguing giant spinning plasma ball GE logo that you ever could have seen. And what's funny is that none of the spiel or anything else was changed, right? It was all no. the same recording where you. So it was, it was honestly what they added, other than the logos, it was pretty subtle. Like there's one major change in the entire ride of a vacuum cleaner bag. Yeah, well, it, you know, they had the little, and I don't know if it was always there. It's like they have little, at what some point they drop in the, you know, bringing good things to oh, life. Oh, yeah, It's like right. that, that line is tossed in. Um, so, I mean, they tried to be, and, I, you know, the direction at the beginning was to be subtle about it, which is why it wasn't a big overt thing. Um, and just at some point they, you know, had had to do a little course correction. Well, that. when you, when you think about it, um when you think about the other attractions, if you're GE and you're a corporate person and you go and you see world of motion, right. And you see the Chevy, oh. all the Chevy stuff after all the GM stuff. And you go to Exxon, you've got the tiger jumping and everything in the film. And it's quite, you got energy exchange. They didn't have energy exchange. They didn't have AT&T future Um, United technologies. Nobody knew what the hell they did anyway. of the living seas, <laughs> cause it didn't make sense. The land, you had a restaurant serving craft. Kodak was about pictures. There was nothing other than the pavilion for GE, right? There was, yeah, I mean, they so, should they should have had a laundromat or something. <laughs> <laughs> Come try out the latest vacuum cleaner, yeah. right? It is really surprising that they didn't do a post-show thing, um, because when they opened up Interventions, there was a big GE presence 
in there. That was really nice and cool. And in the original Carousel Progress of the World's Fair, there was a whole uh, GE uh, pavilion to show all their products. So it, yeah. it is it would have been natural, and it's a perfect post-show ride. I mean, you're you're thinking about the future, so it, it was always surprising that you stepped outside and not into something else. Yeah. I I first rode the attraction 1986. I remember it was top my top th- one of my top threes that I would go to between World of Motion, Spaceship Earth, and Horizons. I would always ride each of them three to four times. Um, Eighty nine, I visited Brian. You rode it in the early nineties. Uh, I I rode it in the ninety five, and then recorded my full ride through in January ninety eight, which is on the uh, on the YouTube's. There we go. Hey, you have to get a copy of that and restore that up <laughs> for you. JT, what about you? Never wrote it. We Never wrote my it. My first Epcot visit, I, I've pinpointed we did Universe of Energy, uh, Wonders of Life, and then that was it over there. Ted, what about you? Uh, I mean, 85, wrote it twice, the only yep. time I went, but I remember that moment getting on that ride and, and have no idea what it was. I don't even know that I loved retrofuturism at that point, but I still <laughs> remember the visceral reaction of look what i was looking at and the moment i could choose my own ending i just i was obsessed i I regret never going back but i so lucky that i was able to write it and how you wrote it but you also lived it oh i i know how story (laughs) yeah it's fantastic so let's we'll fast forward through the 90s here and and other than the changes we just noted and other than a spruce up now and then i mean it, the internet wasn't there like it is today, so you really didn't get ideas of it, you know, going down for ref, refurb or you know, hey, we're gonna dust things off. There were no major changes to the attraction that I'm aware of in the entire time it it rode, other than those small GE ones that we talked of. Can you think of any others, Hal? I I can't. You know, it it had really started to kind of decay for a while there when yeah. they were gonna shut. I mean, the plan was to shut it down once test track was open and then once that got pushed off because they couldn't get it working well the entire problem that's a whole other story right that was supposed to open in 95 yeah they were closing horizon they were closing horizons in the beginning of 95 and then they just kept extending it because test track wasn't ready and then it just became like a generational affair as, you know, 96 went into 97, 97 went into 98. Uh, and they finally closed at the beginning of 99. But, you know, there was this, like I said, it was the long goodbye. It was. It, can you imagine if that ride was going away today, the merchandise and all the different things that they would have it's, and the goodbye it's, tours. It's the it's, Main Street Electrical Parade of Attractions. It just yeah, it refuses yeah. to die. It's. <laughs> Well, so I guess we have, in a way, test track to thank. And when you see inclinings of things going away, uh, you know, we got to remember this is 20 years ago. So it was a little harder to make judgment on this than it is today, especially now, as we just mentioned, Disney capitalizes on when attractions are going to close and it becomes a hadoo and people go and they ride and they cry and they have ice cream and they it breaks down and they pet the dinosaurs. You know, it's all sorts of fun stuff that goes with it. Um, but I think we have Test Track to thank for extending the life of Horizons and allowing um, a specific set of people to go in and really get into an attraction and document it like 
no other attraction I think has ever been documented from the outside. Uh, and specifically, we're talking about uh, Hoops, Hoot Gibson and and Chief. And if the, for those of you not familiar, um, you can we we, we uh, have a copy of all the photos that Hoot and Chief took, as well as their blog. But there's a there's a blog that they did called Mesa Verde Times. So if you look that up, um, they uh, Hoot and Chief had learned to figure out the timing of the ride so that they could hop off at certain points and count the cars and figure out if they got on the ride at the right point with this many people uh, between them and the next empty car or the, the X number of empty cars between them and the next people, I'm sorry, uh, that they could hop off. They had enough time to hop off, see something, run around, and then jump back in and continue the antics as they went through the attraction. And they eventually got brave enough to camp out bring food, snacks, water, find hiding spots. And this attraction was built with absolutely no devices to allow Disney to know that there were intruders <laughs> or people brazen enough to jump off the attraction. Now, you do that in Spaceship Earth, as we learned, guys. What happens you do that? You're you're going to be called out immediately, they're, right? They're coming for you. We, we, we should preface the before we go any further, we don't encourage this behavior. No. We don't uh, endorse this behavior. We appreciate what they did because of the historical record that it that it kept for us. Uh, right. Today, with the availability of high res lenses and low light stuff and telephoto and things, stuff you just didn't have then, attractions are much more well documented now. Uh, so right. there isn't the need for this. But the fear was, as Mr. Toad had gone, and you can probably think of two or three others I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but major attractions uh, at the Magic Kingdom and in Disneyland had disappeared. Submarine Voyage. Submarine Voyage, yeah. These oh, yeah, things, things that were going away. Uh, and this, uh, what do you want to call it? A, a, a fandom, I guess, of, yeah. the, you know, Walt... Disney, I don't want to say they invented themed entertainment, but they certainly perfected it uh, at WED and Imagineering in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And so this was the first generation of kids who grew up with it that wanted to be Imagineers, that wanted to create this stuff when they grew up, these things that they grew up in. And so this was an effort by some people to document how the magnum opus uh, attraction that married the Epcot era with, uh, you know, Walt's original attraction era uh, yeah. that really was perfection personified. They wanted to document it. So I I, yeah. I, I just felt like it was important to say that because there's yeah. these other yahoos now that jump out and do bad stuff yeah. in the parks that, you know, reveal trade secrets and go in areas where they're not supposed to go. And it's to promote themselves, not to promote the things that they're discovering. And exactly. there was no fame for these guys. These guys, there was no internet. These guys were doing this for their own records, and it's only through time uh, and and technological advancements that today we we have this just complete wealth of of knowledge. And if you listen to our last episode, so much of what we've learned is from those photographs and and things that we have that they took that would be completely right. lost to history otherwise. And I think there's two things here too, as as you mentioned, Brian. You know that the technology. I mean. Hoot and Chief were doing this with 
35 millimeter cameras that, you know, now you can go out and buy a digital SLR 35 millimeter for, you know, pennies compared to what you could do just a regular film camera back then. So going in and taking the, I don't know if they were using, you know, point and shoots or if they actually had some adjustable lenses on it, but still the processing, they would never get the resolution. So the, the time that they needed to spend in there, you needed to take photos from every angle and every possible position because you wouldn't get everything in a shot. The grain would, you know, the grain to the film would show the resolution of the things they're trying to do. And it's shoot. important to note the ethos because Hoot has addressed it today. They never took anything. They never touched anything. They never damaged anything. Right. You know, uh, they, they, they took trash. That was it. They only ever took something that was in the trash. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The other interesting thing, too, is that I think this in the long term, and you guys correct me if you think otherwise, uh, Disney obviously knows that this went on. You know, after the fact, they found out. I think it's taught them a lesson about ride documentation. At least we hope that before a ride is dismantled, that the appropriate documentation is taken and archived. I think in the late 90s, we were in an interesting time with Epcot. And, you know, it had the wand flying overhead by that time of, you know, 2000s coming or whatever it was. Um, You know, and uh, I, I think we're at a time where yeah, it's past its time. And... You know, now they have to resurrect our memories by just bringing out one or two robots that they happened to save and the rest went to the trash bin, right? So I think they've learned something with this. Or at least I hope they have. That's my hope. I, I also think the prices that they're probably noticing at auctions for Disney mm. items should be registering with them as how valuable people literally believe uh archives of this stuff is so i would hope they recognize that as a reason to you know keep and they you know disney archivist uh, um, forget his name who just passed and they were very big on archiving their company i i think uh they probably just didn't view theme park items as it so i, I would hope that helps yeah I, i'm and dave smith is who you're is who you're thinking dave smith, of thank and, you yes and yes it's important to note that they preserve one or two 20,000 league submarines. They're not preserving the two dozen ride vehicles and, and right. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, yeah, you, you can't keep everything. Right. Right. Yeah. But also I'm talking about, it's like properly documenting. My hope would be that if this was 1999 or, you know, or they're shutting down horizons next week, that proper documentation would have been done, not keeping everything. But proper photos, high definition photos, and everything. And who knows? Maybe they did do some documentation. We only will know. But judging on what we've seen, the fact that you know Disney still doesn't have photos of things, some things, and they look, they show us a lot of D twenty three and events. But the fact that they still admit to not having some <laughs> photos of some things, you know, frogs and whatnot. It, you know, those were a long time ago. But still, I, I think that's telling. So how you you. You know, you know Hoot on a personal level through college. We've talked about that before and uh, your fun times at the opening of the Disney MGM Studios and opening day with Hoot. Um, and you have a closer relationship and knowing what went on there. So I know you're going to reach out to him and we might potentially have him back on the show to talk a little more. But what else can you tell us about, you know, their escapades and, and what they were doing and, and the lengths that they went to, to to complete this archival process, if you will? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I got to go on a couple of those expeditions with them uh, because I'm I'm not as brave as they are. Uh, <laughs> there's like there is no way I was going to chance getting an annual my annual pass taken away to spend like six hours in there. But um, I did I did go to get to go on a couple of them. 
And uh, I'll tell you, it was amazing. Just, you know, we talked a little bit. I talked a little bit early about the level of detail in there. Mm-hmm. And just like the level of detail everywhere on those sets was intriguing. Uh, you know, you'd go into um, you go into the the apartment in uh, Nova City and there are photographs of the family that you see later on of like actors staged as family photos just like in the in the like on tables and in bookcases and things and just all sorts of strange little knickknacks uh when you go into sea castle it's like you know there's like i talked about the last time there's you know there's china and dishes and i actually was able to track down the china pattern so I, so if, if you want to have your own oh yeah set this of, is great uh, if you want to have your own set of sea castle china uh you're going to want to find uh on the internet uh, the manufacturer was Fitz and Floyd, and the pattern is called Platinum Rondelet. It was made from 1977, I think, until about 1984. So they must have got it. Maybe they got it on clearance. I don't know. But uh, you can you can have your own set of Horizons dishes now. Um, but just just the the level of detail everywhere, um, and then it was it's always funny to see, you know, because it was staged, you know things uh things that weren't there like i talked about the last time it's like you go upstairs and the lady is in the bathtub but only part of the bathtub is built and you know she's missing an arm and things because you wouldn't see it from where you were so you know it was it was a really a fascinating look at the stagecraft of how those things were built as well um and we do i mean we really have to thank them for going in and taking pictures of everything because the our understanding of of these levels of detail would never would have been possible without them um and it's as brian said it's like i don't recommend this anymore it was a different time it's like the the technology to detect somebody you know is is now a five dollar sensor where before it was probably like a multi-thousand dollar system right so uh so don't try this at home kids it's not the it's not the time anymore it's it's a post it's a post uh 9-11 world it's like People will shoot you now or, or be very <laughs> harsh in how they apprehend you if it happens. It's like we've seen people trespassed for, you know, much less of these transgression these days. Uh, but uh, it was a remarkable experience. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm just glad that, you know, over the course of time, like this stuff was able to be saved. And, you know, they... I, we have to really, you know, take our hats off to them for for putting that together. And, yeah, and we'll talk to them, and and we'll get some, uh, we'll get an interview going on here. Right. Yeah. And uh, Chief passed away about what five years ago? Was it just about just about? That, yeah. yeah, yeah. He had passed away from a, a battle of cancer. So, um, a couple other notes here too. Uh, um, we talked last month about how the scent has really, really, you know, is ingrained in our noses too. The orange scent. Um. And we had a section in last month's audio, and I actually cut it out because it didn't have the right thing. But I found actually two products that are pretty cool that people might want to try. But uh, the first one is actually a men's shaving cream um, made by Pacific Shaving Company. And um, when I had it a number of years ago, it had an orange scent that reminded me of it. Um, there's also a, a, another product. I, I, I'm going to try to find this one. It's uh, made by a company called Jason. Uh, it's you know different facial cleansers, and they had a, an orange cleanser that my wife had that sounded very that 
smelled very, very similar. So I'm going to look that one up. But the other one, this guy's... Have you guys ever heard of my Sheldon? Nope. You haven't. Oh, so it is a great... It's a great air freshener from Japan. And and why Sheldon? It's S-H-A-L-D-A-N. Why Sheldon is yours is beyond me. But they have an orange scent. You can get them on Amazon. Um, You can get a pack of 12 for 38 and uh, or one for six ninety four, and it does have a pretty good orange scent, pretty pretty close to Horizons, which is which is pretty cool. Um, the best part is that uh, when you go to Amazon, it wants to filter your re- your results by your vehicle, so it's asking me to make sure that this say <laughs> a natural air freshener for my car fits my vehicle, which I think it will. So you can give those a try if you want. We'll put the links in the show notes as well. Will um, it fit into a solo sub? I really want to know now. That would be great. <laughs> just taking the taking the oranges with you, right? Yeah. Everywhere you go. So, um, And uh, before we go out on here on our final thoughts about the legacy of Horizons, um, Ted, you had some information on a potential rehash of Horizons and meshing it together in a very odd fashion in the late 90s yeah so this is a one of my favorite items that i acquired it's a it's a looks like it's on a what what were the old printers called uh oh mimeographs no the uh before you had uh um uh for computer dot matrix printer it looks like a dot matrix oh oh, yes um and it's a proposal for a carousel of progress at disneyland um presented by general electric uh, but it's a it's a it's a mash of Horizons and General Electric. So it says uh, the following is a first draft proposal to return, revitalize, and expand the General Electric Carousel of Progress for the new Tomorrowland at Disneyland. Uh, in addition, we are once again uh, invited to walk up onto the stage and ride a speed ramp into the future. A full-side recreation of Horizons space, desert, and urban habitats awaits us on the awaits us on the second level. So this document. Uh, goes through each one of the theaters. As we know, the Carousel of Progress is built on rotating theaters. So in Theater 1, it would be the Looking Back at Tomorrow section from Horizons with There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow as the song overlay. So that is what you would see in Theater Number 1. And then Theater Number 2 would be the 1890s uh, Carousel of Progress depiction that we all know and love from the original Carousel of Progress. Theater number three would be the 1940, uh, 1940s modern home that we also know currently from the Carousel Progress. Theater four, and this is how we are able to document this, um, the date of this um, document because it doesn't have a date on it. But theater four is a vacation villa circa 1990. This is a time which must be familiar and identifiable as our present but strict stretching to the future so as not to date too quickly. Around the family, we see such modern-day wonders as a giant flat TV, cordless phone, etc. So that's the present. Now, Theater 5, we're at an undersea research station. The daughter is working on a research program that has given, us, given her family a tour of the facility. And then it says, This will give us an opportunity to utilize the sea's habitat from Horizons, which was deleted from the second level. So I think they were originally they must have had an idea to put the all of the habitats on the top level. And then they must have realized that they could only fit Mesa Verde, Bravo Centauri and uh, the other one that you mentioned up there, Nova City. So then they moved the uh, or at least part of the undersea thing downstairs. 
So then theater six is a space station orbiting the Earth. So now up to six theaters, which is more than the carousel has uh, in the current form. Theater seven is the urban habitat from horizons. That's literally what this document says. What I can't tell is, is this implying that horizons is now yeah. being this? Maybe this is one of those years when it was closed before it reopened. And they were thinking of moving Horizons to Disneyland. I can't imagine they're talking about rebuilding all this stuff. Probably maybe just a couple of the sets. Maybe. But that Yeah, so so my guess is they had a problem with not knowing what to do with Carousel of Progress because GE stopped sponsoring that, I think, right I'm trying to remember when it ended. They they were simultaneously sponsoring Horizons and Carousel of Progress at the same time. As you have before, there had been several proposals, I think, to try to move Carousel of Progress back to Disneyland. So what this could have been was an idea to uh, move Carousel of Progress back to Disneyland and then take some of the sets out of Horizons because potentially it was going to close because, you know, they only had a 10 year contract on it. And then to try to reuse, you know, elements of the original Carousel of Progress with with these things and entice GE into sponsoring a new show <laughs> for another 10 years, like based on that, since they were kind of pulling out of everything. So I think the way it worked at Disneyland was there's there's the load and then the four scenes and then where you would have the unload. It's like that's where you would take the, the speed ramp, the speed ramp up yeah. to the top. So when they're talking about those and then this the scenes as they're describing it like scene six i think would then be at the top of the speed ramp like upstairs that's where the 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 fission uh, well no that's no. where progress city the model would have been oh, oh well, the, the way, fission the fission way, was before that that's right that, that yeah. was world's fair so world's this fair. was yeah so this would have been using like the integrated top and bottom as it was originally and then you would have exited out once you went to all the experiences. Then you would have gone outside and then went down the ramp and out. Do you realize how many East Coasters would fly to Disneyland just to see that if that was still there? Absolutely. Today, if they did that. So it says for Theater 7, the concept is this is the first of three habitats taken from Horizons. In order to maintain continuity with the earlier scenes, we see the same family in an extended view of the future. Then Theater 8 is the desert habitat from Horizons. Again, we see members of the family exploring the future. Theater 9, the space scene from Horizons. So this sounds like they are planning to move Horizons from Florida to and California. Yeah, And they're taking the four major scenes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so ultimately that died when they decided not to do it. So they did the 93 refurb of the, of the Carousel of Progress and... You have the show that you have now down there, that because that 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 would have been. I mean, you're right around 1990, 91. They were probably this pitch had to have been done because Horizon sponsorship, which was ten years, would have been done in '93, uh, and the Carousel. I think the last refurb prior to '93 was like 1980, wasn't it? When they went in in '80 or '81, they went in and redid that. Uh, the last scene again and modernized it a bit. And So the end of the document says, uh, exit onto the second level of the theater, as House said, and down in the existing ramp or onto the skywalks around Tomorrowland. This scenario is intended to spark discussions and generate future further input into the new carousel progress. New settings, new topic, and new solutions are welcome. 
the new carousel will truly be a carousel of progress. So mm. I only wish this had been. I think of every un unmade Disney concept I'm aware of or have a document of, this is the one I wish was made. The GE sponsorship of the Carousel of Progress expired on March 10th of 1985. So it would have been running sponsorless for a couple of years. And then uh, I, I think they really did want to... Oh, yeah. And the other thing is like when uh, when you would go to the Walt Disney Story post show, they showed um, concept art of a flying saucer ride hmm. that was going to go where the Carousel of Progress was. So they might have been banking on the idea of moving it back to California and then putting the new flying saucers in the pad where Carousel of Progress was because you already had a basement there. So they could have put all the air handler stuff down in the basement and then put the platter on top of it. And then we had to wait another 20, 30 years for Luigi's flying tires to finally (laughs) bring the flying saucer back. And still not work. And yeah. So... Interesting. Well, I now know that we have sparked the interest of many of our listeners now because they're saying, oh my gosh, can you imagine if that was still there? I I have my own thoughts on why I think Horizons has left such a mark on a lot of people. A lot, of, you know, we, we all know what Epcot has done to a lot of minds around our age groups and stuff. Um, so I think we all should m- m- kind of give our own thoughts here. And and you know, I'll, I'll start here. Is I I came up with this idea when we first were doing episode one of this part one, and it came to me during the spaceship scene when I was thinking about that. I said, okay, that's relatable. And then all of a sudden, I was like, well, they did such a great job. It was realistic. And everything that was presented to you was reachable for the time period, right? So you were being put into something that and shown something that was relatable, realistic, and reachable with today's technology and, and, and so much hope that that's the direction we were going. Um, you know, and that, that's kind of what my takeaway from it was. That, and, and when you put something together like that... Um, I think it just leaves a, such an, a lasting impression in your mind. And I also think because Epcot is my generation's World's 64 World Fair, really, that's the way to look at it. I think these left marks on my philosophy and my uh, interpretation and, and my hope and all that, just as I think the same thing did for my father in the World's Fair, um, tying that all together. So. That's kind of my take on it. And yes, we can go on to how detailed it was and all that. Um, but sp- seeing the space shuttle sitting there, that was relatable to somebody in the 80s. It was realistic. You could feel like you could reach out and be right there. Um, and again, all those goals that were put in front of you were, were reachable. So my belief is um, so much of pop culture's view of the future is dystopian. This is probably the most viewed view of the future in all of pop culture, I'm going to argue, or maybe the last 30 years. 
that showed a bright view of the future. And it was done with ingenuity. It was done with, to, to your point, something relatable and believable. Uh, it was done with passion. It was done with care. It was done with detail. And every other major piece of pop culture from Terminator to Waterworld to uh, Blade Runner that depicted the future, everything sucked in the future and the world was going to be annihilated or had been annihilated. And here we see the opposite and we yearn for that. We want to be told the future is bright and that we have reasons to look forward to it. And here was a living, breathing depiction of it that you experienced really close up and really in a, an immersive fashion before immersion was even a thing in entertainment. And that just resonated and stuck. And people could watch it now on YouTube and videos and still experience that. And nobody else does that. Everybody who wants to talk about the future in pop culture just wants to talk about something bad. And this is refreshing. I remember, I know I've told this story at some point in the past on the podcast, but my parents both experienced Epcot Center before I got to go. And I just remember hearing them talk about rides, things that they saw that they liked, and not knowing the name of it at the time. They would say a name and then they'd say, oh, that's the one where you can pick your your, your ending. And that, I mean, we touched on it tonight, but that was a, a just a mind-blowing thing. And I think if you take a look at these kinds of attractions, that was a piece of it. The, the, the orange scent was a piece of it because they were elements of, and the, the scale. Everything in this ride was massive. It wasn't only so immersive. It was massive. The, 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 the biggest movie screen you'd ever seen. And the, 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 the building itself was this gigantic footprint and and uh, it looked like a spaceship had landed and so you know it was Epcot itself was a big thing everything in Epcot was big and broad and uh, futuristic uh, throughout and meant to it was the opposite of Disneyland uh, Disneyland which reaches out and hugs you and everything's a smaller scale uh, Epcot was the opposite. Epcot was meant to make you feel small and everything around you feel big. And it, the, in, in, a, in a park full of big things and a place full of big things, Horizons was the biggest. And that's what I think probably cements it. It was all of the things you guys have mentioned, but at, at, at from a physical sense, you, 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 it was the grandest place in a grand, in a place that was full of grandeur. That that's my best explanation. And yeah. it's never been matched. Nothing that they've done since that anybody's done. I mean, I, you know, I, the, 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 even everything I've watched from Tokyo, Disney sea and everywhere else in the world where they're doing things, there's nothing on that scale now that they attempt to immerse you at that level. Uh, with with nothing but a message right. uh, you know that that whole ride was about a message and uh it was consumer products and it was it, technological advancements all being done by one company uh that were the foundation for everything that you saw on that ride and uh, you know 
just it it's just it it really was I enjoyed our last episode and and how and Todd taking us painstakingly through each inch of every scene because there were things either I didn't know or things I didn't remember. Uh, having even watched the ride videos a thousand times, I, I you know, it's still been twenty one years since I set foot on the ride, so uh, you you tend to things fade into memory, but that that's yep. that's my take on it. I don't think anything can ever replicate it because we're too used to expecting the next ride to be bigger and better. And there was a naivete at the time about rides and we didn't know to think about it. 83 Reaganism and the birth of the eighties. I just don't even know that anything can ever match that specialness, no matter how great the ride is, how cool it is. I just think it was a time that just can never be recaptured. And technology yeah. now too it's it's you know the the leap from 1978 79 when they started working on this ride until it opened in 83 the 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 advance of technology and we're kind of used to now this idea that your your 5-year-old computer is ancient your 5-year-old phone <laughs> is like an artifact <laughs> that belongs in a museum and back then, those technological advances were just kind of starting. You move, everybody was moving from rotary to touchtone phones. And people who, you know, you never had an answering machine by the end of the 80s. It was weird if you didn't have an answering machine. At the beginning of the 80s, you weren't really expected to have cable TV. It wasn't, but by the end of the 80s, you did. There's so, VCRs, there's so much stuff that in that decade, it just, they're they're really they're like two different centuries, much more so probably than any other ten year period. Uh, it just the 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 domestic largesse and the things that you had in your home at the end of the eighties compared to the beginning of the eighties, uh, and that ride was like right smack dab in the middle of it, and you know so there were things you were seeing in that ride that were concepts when they did the ride that by the end of the decade were reality. So I don't expect to be able to ride a banshee at the end of the, <laughs> in the next ten years. But well, and you know, and that that because it brings up a good point is that uh, attractions. You know, we've seen the, the the challenges of predicting the future, Tomorrowland, and all that, and and technology and future has given way to fantasy, right? I mean, that's what we're seeing more of because it's it it, it it's not going to go out of style. JT, from your perspective, having you know never been on the ride, you've had to only watching grainy VHS and restored movies and listen to us banter on for hours. Uh, I'm curious to see what your take is because you're one of the few, well, well, a few on this podcast that, that yeah. never heard um, I'd say number one, it to me connects with the whole old Epcot feel, you, World of Motion, uh, Universe of Energy, Spaceship Earth, and then this. When I think like, okay, what did I miss? I, I still enjoy Spaceship Earth. I like going on. I don't necessarily learn anything because I've ridden it a bunch. And, you know, the whole thing of going to Epcot to learn on vacation or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, I enjoy those rides now as I'm older. Now, young me, I look back and I look at, you know, my kids. I don't know if they would enjoy it at this point, you know, because it does seem kind of dry, kind of whatever. And 
unless there were some updates. But at the same time, I mean, it's definitely something I guess I wish I would have gone on. I don't know, just to just to say I saw it. I when I look at these pictures, it blows my mind that I, I don't even remember seeing the building. Like that's, that's just how like you know we just walked right past it. Just let's get to Mexico, you know. I mean, it's just crazy to me. It was right there, but yep. uh, yeah. I, I partially too. I'll just this will make some waves. I'm sure. I don't really understand what all the hubbub is about personally. <laughs> I, I get it. There's stuff that I miss too there, and I understand the the personal connection. And you know, it's something that you know it's it was replaced by Mission Space. I've always I it won't say Mission Space is my favorite ride, but it's I I don't know. I don't dislike it. It's fun for me, but I don't know. I I just kind of watch it, and I'm sitting there going, why is everybody freaking out so much about this? I, I, that's just my <laughs> take, but I don't know. And I think maybe not being ever seeing it might just you know cause that thought process. I don't sure. know. Go ahead, Hal. I look forward to JT oh. reading his uh, his hate mail next week in the mailbag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, don't no. worry. Nobody's listening by this point <laughs> <Yeah>. anyway. <laughs> uh, you know, I think really uh, – there's a certain type of person. It's the same way that if we go back and we look at stuff from the 1964 World's Fair and I look at, you know, the Magic Skyway and I'm like, wow, it would have been really cool to ride that. I mean, I know it was it, the dinosaurs probably looked cheap as hell and the cavemen looked terrible. But through this lens of modern times to be able to look back at something that's really big, it just looks like it would be fun to ride in. And I think that's that's what's going on with the fans today. It's like. Maybe they only got to ride it when they were three or four and they didn't get to appreciate it really. Or maybe they never wrote it, but you see all these pictures and things and you're like, well, that looks cool. Yeah. You know, and I, for me, it's like, I, I will not be able to eloquently say this, but you know, going, going through Epcot and it was such a, a sea change in attitude. A lot of horizons was kind of one of the few like old school disney feeling things that were there it's like when when you wrote it it's like it had that same kind of feeling as the carousel of progress it's like the jokes weren't actually funny it's like they didn't you know necessarily land it's like everything there's you know a high there but still enjoyable like even though you didn't actually like laugh at the redhead like making jokes about like laser lock with the the sub guy (laughs) it's like you understood what was going on. There's always this very strange level of comedy with Disney in attractions where it wasn't really, I guess it was kind of like dad jokes or corny. Well, and it, and it, it might rightfully be the last attraction that they did that you actually got the sense, even though it wasn't the case, that, well, this is, I would have gotten this ride just like this if Walt was alive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and the company at that time was still very governed by an ethos of, what would Walt do? And 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 it really that and imagination were like the last two where you're like, Walt would have greenlit this ride and it would have been just like this if he was alive. Yeah. yeah. And in terms of the quality and the delivery and the feel of the ride and and yeah. the fact that there was a there was something going on other than just let's entertain people for 15 minutes exactly yeah it was you know a 20 minute long ride there were practical effects throughout the entire thing it's like there was a rubber octopus down there winking at you you know there was a person like stuck with a robot with its feet stuck to the wall to like look like it was floating there's a giant crystal turning for some reason i mean it was for 20 minutes, you got to just sit down and like ride through three dimensional, fully three dimensional sets, 
plus mixed with you know film and stuff it was it was a very old school approach like today if you were going to do horizons it would probably be like soren or some like four minute thrill ride yeah <laughs> like it would not be like a, tw- a 20 minute long slow churn you know with grandparents talking to you Yeah, and, and that Brian, it's a great point because if you really look at the timeline of it, where when Horizons opened six years later, the at Disney MGM Studios opened, right? And that was right. a total change for the company. Eisner Absolutely. was in. Yeah. It was yeah, a, and I was think I was thinking a great movie ride is like right. okay, that's the next big animatronic ride that they. But did. it's got explosions and guns, and yeah, it's, it's just it's, not not it's what like. So yeah. I'm going to quote Marty yeah, Sklar to who who uh, Brian's channeling. This is from the GE uh, publication. Horizons is a type of pavilion that I think Walt had in mind when he visualized Epcot. It's a synthesis of all the other pavilions in that it encompasses energy, transportation, communications, and so on. And it incorporates a lot of firsts for us as a company. I, I, all of that's true. All yeah. of that's true. It's because the, if you... I, I, I really do. I think about that a lot as to kind of what came after it. And Movie Ride was the last big like adult animatronic type thing and splash mountain would have been the next generation of kind of fantasy land dark ride full of animatronics right and it's i mean it's terrific it's just and what would have loved it yep so i kind of feel like splash mountain was the last big original animatronic attraction uh for the fantasy land style rides and Horizons was was it on the World's Fair slash Epcot style ride. I have a question for you guys that wrote it, and it's how how talking about all these practical effects things happening in this, and you might have went on this on episode 1.5 or something, but did it always work? Was there things broken often? Because you see, you know, I, all I picture now is current Disney and how there's even a Twitter feed on broken things at Disney, and <laughs> were things always, were, was it well-maintained, all these random things happening, or was there, or don't you remember the bad? It, I, I think it's fair to say it was in rough shape those last... By the end, yeah. 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 Okay. I, I mean, remember in 86 and 89 seeing... Not having any issue with it. You know, 86 is, you know, we're three to six years old and not seeing any problem with it and, and not saying, oh, that's not working. I'm sure there was one or two things that I missed, but how you... You know, you went to it more than any of us. Um, and yeah. I well, Hal used to repair things in the ride. He would just hop <laughs> off and fix up and break it. You know, I, I want to say it never really, I never really felt like the animatronics weren't working like one day you would go through. And I mean, I know that stuff happens. It's like we just capture it now because yeah. we, you know, we have phones and stuff with us all the time. But I don't feel like I ever was on when like there was a major catastrophic change and the other thing is at that time it's like if there was a breakdown of something it's like they actually would 
close the ride. It's like they had a very strict yeah. list of like, if this breaks down, if this like if a if a light bulb went out in the IMAX theater, the whole ride is shut down. Right. They did not let let you ride through it today, like you do when you're riding the Little Mermaid, and then suddenly there's a Panasonic logo. <laughs> up on the wall because like the projectors rebooting right and let, um, let's let's say I'll, I'll be honest too is that some of the effects were so effective but so simple that if they did go out it didn't change the ride to the point where it was unrideable too yeah you know like, what i mean like the effect of the smoke uh as a stand-in for like water vapor coming out of the refrigerator when it opened and closed yeah. it's like well that probably died somewhere along the way the big thing that i remember mostly is like as as it got to the end it's like the audio system it would like the dialogue would cut in and out which happened a lot with rides even the haunted mansion would did that before its last big reverb and right. then um uh the the cars themselves it's like the ride just got really loud and squeaky as time went on <laughs> it's like you would hear the motors and like this <laughs> the wheels grinding and stuff but that was i mean those yeah. two things were probably the biggest and of course shit was dusty sorry oh, yeah used a bad word there but like things got you know the sets and stuff weren't were dusted like the like, how do you how do you go in and dust an omnisphere right <laughs> I, yeah. swiffer like you just can't you just can't <laughs> hey so here's a question now you guys know this stuff too did the original like you know that whole computer system thing underground epcot that controlled everything did that control horizons i take it like so what we just found out is that that was actually not the case of epcot we each we I just listened to a fantastic interview on the Tomorrow Society podcast with uh, actually one of the guys that did a lot of the computer programming, and he actually uh, blew a myth that everything was controlled at Epcot Computer Central the way that it was at Dax in Walt Disney. So World. what was the point of Computer um, Central just for the Astuter Computer <laughs> Review? And that like that part, that whole computer just controlled early the pearly that was it that's all that partially <laughs> there were um there were some systems for communicore that were housed in there the like overall property like fire control system and power management stuff was uh monitorable from in there but the rides themselves the computer systems that ran the rides were actually located in each one of the pavilions it wasn't centrally centrally located like it was during the magic kingdom era So speaking of a time timeline here, when did it all close? If you want to go back in time, it was January 9th, 1999. So 1999, uh, it permanently closed. The signs weren't removed until the following September. Um, and then it briefly opened for press groups like for a day or something in September, which was really weird. They just um, fired it right then, back up. Yeah, fired it back up after, you know, six months of downtime, uh, eight months actually. And... Um, on July seventh, two thousand, the the demolition started, and uh, it took only to uh, September to to take it down, and uh, Mission Space was started. The interesting thing on the demolition, I'm sure a lot of you have seen photos. If you haven't, um, we talked about that the building was really built about around these two omnispheres, um, and there was a massive structure in the center that held up the building. 
Um, and when they took it down, they actually had to chop away, bite away with these machines around the center to get to the core. And what was left was this strange tower with the roof hanging from it. It's a, it was, it was interesting. The only, so that was quite a, quite a demo job, quite, yeah, quite a bit to do. Something that I didn't realize that I, I saw in the maintenance documents is that the IMAX, uh, projectors were actually rented. No, they didn't own own those. (laughs) So they they had to give them back before they demolished the building. Just because they're IMAX branded? Yeah, I think probably IMAX has a thing where they don't actually let you buy the projectors from them. You probably just go into a long-term lease. Yeah, you probably get all parts from them, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's That's funny. That was funny. And I know in in some of the uh, demolition photos, the really sad part is that, you know, you can see some of the set pieces in in some of the the things certain things were just not removed um there's pictures of the cars all you know there's like maybe 12 of them on a flatbed truck just going down the highway being taken out um piles of rubble there's a couple pictures of rescued film strips and um some background images that were saved and um but yeah the some of the close-up shots uh they're not for the weak at heart. If, uh, Where's the car? Have anybody seen was... the cars? Are they anybody have one in their living room somewhere? Or anybody... There was one for sale not long ago. I a Van Eaton auction or something. So there was. Ew, that so that's my que- that's my 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 quest for the listeners. If you know of a car sitting in somebody's garage, their rec room, I just want to see like a you know I, I love that stuff when it gets out there. Not as much as the ride being demolished and all that's not worth it, but still, I think that's pretty cool to see that. So if you know of a car, so. So here's my here's my bet. So we know that there was one that was sold at Theme Park Connection. And I think that might have been the one that ended up going up for auction later on. So knowing what we know about the way things are disposed of, somewhere on Disney property is a landfill <laughs> filled with how many cars were on this attraction? Oh, 80 something. Something like that. That's yeah. it. That would take up the whole landfill. But they don't care. They got forty-three square miles somewhere. I mean, you ran past it in the in the marathon. He ran past the dump. <laughs> I mean, somewhere is a dump filled with all these chunks of Horizon, like like the and Atari games, the ET. Yeah, exactly. Someday in the future, we might be able to do the Atari game thing and actually find <laughs> there are ho- all this one hundred eighty-four vehicles, uh, one hundred eighty-four, and there's one one that we know. So you don't of. think so that the truckload that Todd's talking about was taken for for preservation? It was more taken for trash. Yes. Why would they take I'll... the cars out and just like drive? Like, why not just demo it with the cars in it? Well, I mean, you got to get them off of yeah. the off of the track first. Yeah. They're... I mean, there's probably some things that you need to do just procedurally it's like oh we take the stuff off the track you know like the the track could get sold for scrap so there are right. probably some so, things so that they could actually... so you would take set pieces out but normally what happens is unless you're preserving them like the background stuff the stuff the set pieces sat in unless you have a plan for them that that all goes in the demolition that's the but any kind of hard i mean those were hard five probably fiberglass or yeah. molded plastic or something injection molded whatever it is uh, you know, you don't leave those in the building. I mean, they because they because they don't get destroyed. Like like when when the building falls down, they're still in complete hunks, and and so what, most of what happens with that debris is that it gets separated into clean fill, uh, which is stuff that can be put into the ground, and then landfill stuff, which is 
hard objects, things like that, which you would actually pay to bury somewhere because uh, you can't burn that. Um, or it could be scrapped. It could have gone to a junkyard. They, they could have gone to a junkyard where they separate out all the metal and all that and and uh, and the plastic pieces literally just get ripped apart. So uh, that's the kind of stuff that that happens with that. And demolition's a fascinating business. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I just can't believe totally. out of 184 cars, only one made it out. Something else. So I just sent you guys a photo. I was looking through some of our uh, demolition photos, and we do have uh, pictures of the Omnimax removed before the demolition, which is pretty cool. So we've got a couple, a couple of pictures of that. Um, they they so look like we'll, in an old school projector TV if you take the screen off. That's what it looks like inside yeah. the three color bulbs or whatever. Oh, well, that would have been the uh, the that top one would have been the video system that was used for the Choose Your Tomorrow. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then the other one is the back of the of the screens that we were talking about. Um, the other interesting thing is that when they um, uh, when they did demolish it, it was it was it's, the lounge had been closed for a while and had the AT&T because it was used as a temporary AT&T lounge when Spaceship Earth was being refurbished in 1984. So kind of, kind of interesting. And Horizon well. stuff is in the last week alone on eBay, one of those num- oh. one of those number puzzles sold for $150. There was a luggage tag. Oh, the little, the little thing yes. that you would, yes. oh my gosh, I had one of those years ago. In Horizon. It saw one go for $400 what? a few years ago. It's like a ten there were, cent that was, kids party toy. That w- it was sealed. There was a luggage tag, I guess, that was given away to clients that sold for three hundred seventy-five dollars, and and I I got none of these. Um, and then there was <laughs> there is a guy who must be an engineer, uh, an Imagineer. His I think his eBay handle is like Nova Cide. Oh yeah, he sells yes. a lot of stuff. Yes, and he sold a. Um, it's a barely visible. But fairly elaborate um, piece that is the control panel for the uh, the uh, video screen in the undersea city, and that sold for over five thousand dollars. So Horizon stuff really is one of the uh, outside of the big posters. I mean, Horizon stuff goes crazy I mean, because there's not that much to buy. Yeah. No, it w- it was not a celebrated no. uh, souvenir type not. attraction. Uh, you didn't have any characters from it until they really until it closed, and they're like, "Oh wow, we had a cool robot. Let's let's make a pin for it." Well, and they the <laughs> the Jero poster that that triangular one always listed at like five hundred bucks. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I think it's time to close up uh, our discussion of Horizons. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> now we can move on to Mission Space. So if you go into Mission Space today, when you uh, when you have to choose between the orange or the green, there's a mural there, and there's a little tiny Brava Centauri-like space station in that space mural there. And then also, if you go into the queue, and now, as you recall, it's like they reused uh, set pieces from the mission from the Mission to Mars movie that Disney made in there. So there's like a rotating habitat. And in the center of that rotating rotating habitat, they've placed like a Horizons logo in in the middle of that. So those are the two places where you can see a little chunk of Horizons still around. I, I know we mentioned it in the last episode, but the orange scent in Soren 1.0 was a nod to the attraction as well. Yep. Yes. And the Smellitzer from Horizons is now in uh, Spaceship Earth. Yes. 
and it's squirting out the room burning smell as as we found out when we got to take our tour. That's right. The other one broke. Well, got another one. <laughs> big, big hole in the wall. The parts in. Well, I appreciate all you guys for doing the research here and bringing this to probably what's going to amount to nearly seven hours, five, six to seven hours of coverage for our for our listeners. Not enough. Not enough. Oh, yeah. Ted, you can start your own The Horizons <laughs> podcast. Each episode can be a single scene. You'll, well, you'll be... We will. So one of the things I have to say is we are we now have a very good list of names of people who yeah. worked on this. And we are in the process of finding these folks. And we're going to be doing one-on-one interviews with them. I have one that I hope to line up in the next week or so that I think you guys will find very fascinating. Uh, so, you know, in the future, when we do our mini episodes, it's like, we're, we're going to actually have like a lot of firsthand knowledge that we'll be able to pass on to you, uh, from these people. And, uh, I think that's just going to be great. So the horizon story does not end tonight. (laughs) It continues like it's all on the horizon still. It's never. That's right. That's right. I'm really okay with it. I'm just joshing you. (laughs) (laughs) And I know how you had mentioned that last month that we just couldn't get the timing to get all these people in and also discuss the things that we wanted to do here in part three, the legacy. So it's really great how, uh, how the folks who worked on this, you know, who are now retired are starting to appear and starting to share stories and their time. So uh, while we have the opportunity, uh, you know, before, People like George McGinnis, you know, who who died, you know, pretty recently. It's like before everyone is gone, it's like we're going to try to get as many stories from these people as we can. And I will add one more thing. So thank you very much to all of you for listening. I just want to add this in an interesting statistic. You know, our our podcast listener family has been growing, um, you know, quite rapidly, actually, over the past year or so. But here's here's what's interesting is that I ran the statistics for the last year. You know, we produce these about monthly. So there's about 12 episodes out there. Um, in the past year, dating all the way back to last June, and we're now in July here, already Horizons Part 1, the prologue, and Horizons Part 2, the promise, is number one and two for the past year. So it's eclipsed in just a, a month and a half of release episode basically episode 40 uh, 38 or whatever it is through 50 in ju- in just one year and yeah, I mean, in just a month and a half well i think that's a testament if not to us as much as it is to you know the attraction of horizons and how special it was to give to give you an idea so the the number one ever is Epcot Center One Little Spark, and I think that's because of the title that people think we're talking about yes. Journey to Imagination. <laughs> and then they start it and realize, wait a minute, no, this is about the construction. I don't want to, I don't want to. Uh, right behind it is episode three, Fort Wilderness, and then it, it goes into different ones from there. Um, so at, just to give you an idea, there's about uh, 16,000 downloads of of that Epcot One Little Spark over, and that that was produced, what, uh, a number of a number of years ago, and the Horizons episodes already each have um, over seventy two hundred listens in a month and a half. So something that took three years to get to sixteen thousand, we've accomplished. Um, one of them's accomplished since May first, and the other one's done it um, in actually under. 30 days <laughs> has gotten to over 7,000 listens. We struck a chord with all of you out there. We appreciate you listening. 
um, and how I know you did do a couple little pieces of new artwork out there on, on, on our site. And I think you've got a couple more Horizons ideas coming. Oh, yes. We have a lot of merchandise coming. This is, there are so many references and things that we can use. So just hold on here. Yeah. <laughs> the floodgates are about to open. Exactly. Maybe there'll be too much Horizons merchandise. I don't know. But hopefully there's going to be something for everybody. Well, I think accor- according to uh, Ted, if you can't have too much podcast time of Horizons and you can't have too much uh uh, too much merchandise. So that's true. Uh, so you've got you've got a couple out there, right? You've got the uh, the, the you ordered you added two this month. That's right. We did uh, actually the the piece that uh, Ted was talking about, the logo for the uh, for the television system. Yep. It's like I I redrew that, so you have that one is available. And it's and called then, the uh, uh, what is it the the Active Voice Teleview. Yeah. That's what they use in the futures. That's right. And then what was what was the second one? Uh, you did the, the GE name tag shirt. So you can wear oh, it. Oh, that's the, right. That's right. The oval name tag over the, the left breast pocket. Um, in, and you can take a Sharpie or whatever and write in your own name to be. Uh, that's when the, the, the cast members had a GE tag. That's right. So that in the VIP lounge, that was the, the tag that the cast members yep. wore. Um, and yes, we have. There's a variety of stuff coming on. I guarantee uh i think you'll you'll like it once i get it done and we'll post a big one up there and you also did some great camera center and gateway gift logos too that are out there. yeah yeah so. with the news of those going away yep you know or at least one of them going away it was time to end uh there i noticed after i got it done that there were a couple other ones out there on the internet so you know i would say shop around find the find the ones you like it's like if you don't buy mine i'm not going to be disappointed but That's i will right. tell you that you know typographically it's it's as accurate as as we're going to be able to get it and then also i used uh the colors as they were in 1982 instead of the colors as they are now after having been faded out (laughs) over the course of time pre-sun pre-sun yes exactly if they had only been coded in spf 50 we wouldn't know okay (laughs) with that Thank you to everybody for listening. Give us a shout out on iTunes if you can and a review. Appreciate it. If you have any questions or comments, send them to podcast at retrowdw.com. Ted, thank you very much again for sitting in tonight. I hope you enjoyed it. I loved it. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. And uh, we appreciate your support that you've given us over the years and um, all the different anecdotal information you've been able to provide to these episodes. So much appreciated. So... Again, thanks to all of our listeners out there. And with that, we'll see you next month. Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and Retro WDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Retro WDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen, and on the web at KingdomOfMemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at RubberCityMotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brian P. Miles. 
Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax exempt 501c3 organization, and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities. Thank you.